0: Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host today always, Elwood Jones, and joining me of course is the professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello everybody. And tonight you join us for a special bonus episode as we mark another 25 episodes down. And uh, tonight we're going to be looking at our next top 50 Asian cinema. We already did our top 50 Asian cinema back uh, with episode 25, and uh, you know, we thought because we've done another 25 why don't we just add to that list and uh, see what we uncover now because obviously with the first 50 you sort of take off that top layer all the sort of popular titles and then i think it's with the, the next 50 the things get a really sort of interesting. we start getting into a little bit of, one of those deep dives in uh, personal taste and obviously since we did that original list we've done things and uh, it was interesting to obviously see what would make our uh, our next 50 list so um First off, I'm going to do my 25, and Steven's then going to do his 25, and um, together that will give us our additional 50, bringing our top Asian Simmer total to a nice 100. So, I'm going to say tonight, it's um, for myself, it's an interesting list. I want to say, I mean, we could obviously do this list another night and perhaps end up with a few different titles here and there, but I'd like to think that a lot of the titles that made my list of sort of titles that have stood the uh, test of my sort of fandom and I've seen them quite a few times have been on a pretty regular rotation. I mean, for yourself, Stephen, I mean, where does your list sort of fall? Is it, again, is that uh, sort of old favourites or is there some new ones in there or? I think it's it's. It's a bit of both. Okay.
1: And also, last time, picking 25 each, we had to be very... We had to set some rules. I certainly did. I set some rules up, like, I could only pick, like, one film from a director or something, and things like that. Yeah. Which meant that there are films which I probably hold in greater, um, you know, I I, I like more... There may be some that made the original fifty, if that makes sense. Okay. So this 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 time maybe it, it felt a little a little freer. I was I was less um I felt less constrained in making sure that I covered the whole gamut, and this time I can back it up with 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 some others. So I think um I think when we get to my list, I don't think there'll be many surprises, but. Uh, it'll fill in some of those gaps just looking at how the how the our last top 50 sort of went yeah um it 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 looks very strange because there are directors (laughs) i know that we both love and there's only one or two films from them where maybe we've both picked one um and and i I hope i hope that 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 changes i don't know we'll see what happens on yours but um, that's where mine's going
0: well, I guess what I've to do is we're to kick off my list and I'm going to go from 25 down to 1. I don't know how you're choosing to do your list, Stephen, but um, at, I uh, think that's
1: the only way to do a list. <laughs> <laughs> to start the best
0: and work gradually worse. It's It's <laughs> <laughs> But um, at 25, I think, is a film which is very much myself, as it uh, combines elements of both kaiju and wrestling, and that is The Calamari Wrestler. Um, This is from 2004 by Mineral Kawasaki, who is probably best known as a director who likes putting giant animals into his films, as we've seen with Salaryman Koala and uh, certainly the case here with the calamari wrestler where we've got a wrestler who after developing a terminal illness turns into a giant squid like creature uh, determined to reclaim both his former lover and his title inside the ring eventually taking on his rival who for whatever reason turns into a giant octopus this is an absolutely surreal but really fantastic movie that features training montages of uh, this half man half calamari wrestler Running along where his uh, coach is on a bicycle and he's doing little air punches. It's just a really charming and fantastic movie and one that's I don't think we would get outside of Japan, but it's just so wonderfully bonkers that I've at some point I feel that I'm going to show it to you. But I certainly haven't get a lot of viewing whenever it back up every couple of years or so. So um, at 24, you won't you won't be surprised I've never seen really. <laughs> Jonathan Ross is around. I've
1: never even heard I've never even heard of it but you know what sold
2: <laughs>
0: That's a good start. Well, 24 I think you have heard of because it's a film that you recommended. Um and that is The World of Kanako. Wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, just a, a, a film which I recommended on the proviso I didn't like it very much as <laughs> major major top 50. That's fantastic. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, I mean, also this is directed by Tetsuo uh, Nakashimi. This is a really grimy <laughs> sort of a film that probably wouldn't look out of uh, place if it was. Um, you put it alongside the likes of you know Bad Lieutenant or something by Harmony Corinne or um, Larry Clark. Um, th- this was just a really, really unique dive into a. Uh, into the dark side of society. It was almost like a lesser real version of Blue Velvet. The weird wonderful path this turn as a former detective uh, goes in search of his daughter, only to uncover a much darker world in the process. Uh, if you've not seen this, it is available through Shudder, and I had a lot of fun with it. I mean, which is a really weird thing to say. It's like saying you had a lot of fun watching, you know, like. Fuller, a cruel picture or ss girls it's one well, of those movies you're kind of uh shameful to admit you enjoyed as much as you did but if you're looking for a sleazy fix then world of kanako certainly delivers and at the same time features a real sort of bad lieutenant element to it i mean you could almost remake this with harvard Keitel and have just a very similar sort of film it's very it crosses over very well so I know you weren't uh, you weren't a fan of it even though you did like the director's work <sighs> to that point.
1: I think I think I mean this is the guy that gave us Kamikaze Girls although he also gave us um Confessions of which that, you know um yeah which I film film I love very much and and this was you know this this is just a, an extension of of his exploration into depravity I suppose. Um I can't deny it's it, it's amazingly well made. And amazingly well acted and it's just got so much going on to like i just found it i I just found no one to love in the film (laughs) everybody is detestable from beginning to end um and and i think that was my problem with it i mean i'm really happy that you really really liked it yeah um that doesn't happen very often that, that i bring something that um that you've never heard of or you haven't watched and 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 it has that strong an effect on you. So I'm I'm very proud of myself for getting this onto your list. But it's a film I film I I appreciate the craft but I can't I can't love it. And um yeah, in in interesting but I'm
0: happy. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's I think it's because I like for Ferrara movies that it tapped into a similar sort of vein. It's all sort of like when you want to watch something sleazy it But something well made at the same time, and normally Edward Ferrari does that. I mean, as I said, he did, you know, Bad Lieutenant King in New York, Um, and Welcome to New York as well. So he's really sort of taps into that sort of sleazy vein and he's not my go-to director, but certainly I've not found someone who really sort of delivered for that in Asian cinema. And I think, in, so in the case of this director, I think I may have found that surprising fa- surprising fix and you kind of expect to find him, you know, with like Sion Sono or Mika, but both of them deliver sleaze in a very different sort of way. Normally a more, um, how should we put this, a more sort of frenzied, approach than uh the sort of a uh, uh, sort of mindset of actually making something look a little more artistic so
1: yeah his his, his qualities as a, as a as a filmmaker um are far in excess of the other two the other the others have lots of great ideas and 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 have made good uh, no no great films but none of them look as good as world of kanako so yeah interesting
0: i'm glad <laughs> That's the first a few <laughs> surprises on this uh list here. Um, next up on the list is Crying Fist, which is uh sees a former silver medalist boxes, um, hippo by min who spends his days basically honking himself off as a human punching bag, uh to sort of make change. While at the same time hiding from loan sharks and his wife is uh, threatening with divorce and he's ends up set up in a almost redemptive uh, match against this troubled youth who's basically been released from prison and is now looking for a way to find rede- redemption for himself which he obviously finds through boxing and um it finds in many ways we've seen him time and time before it uh provides him with this sort of channel for his aggression and we basically uh follow these two men as they through boxing find the redemption that they are looking for in this uh, amateur boxing competition that takes place between them uh this is a Korean film that features some real Rocky style inspiring training sequences and it's just inspiring to see these two broken people finding themselves through boxing and ultimately setting themselves on this sort of head-on course with each other where you kind of want both of them to win but at the same time only one can win but it's an absolutely fantastically shot film and so if you're a fan of boxing movies in particular I think you'd really get a kick out of that one so
1: I I haven't seen that one actually however I'm a big fan of the director um Ryu Sun 1 who did um oh what did he do he did No Blood No Tears he did Arahan he did um oh what's the other one that I like that he did um the Berlin File, which I I actually saw uh, at the cinema, bizarrely, um, and of course he's he's you no know, he's he's been involved in. He, yeah. he also acts a bit as well, so you'll have seen him in in some other films as well, but yeah, um, not not one of his that I've seen, but one that I would um, you've kind of sold me, and it's also just just looking it up, it's got it's got Min Sick in it, who's um, always always good value, so I'm. Uh, I I I'm going to put that on my to watch list although it is a big list <laughs> isn't
0: it for all of us um mm. um next up is uh, 2009's Red Redline which is the anime version of Wacky Races um a sci-fi auto racing film uh, produced by Madhouse and uh, Mark, the director debut of uh, uh Kenichi I'm going to apologise already tonight that I'm going to be butchering a few names along the way. Um, basically, it's a uh, it's a high stakes race in the future where each uh, each five years the planet is chosen for the race to take place on with various of the various um, sort of extravagant and and very um, out there sort of characters uh, race each other in this deadly uh race that we're um which is both highly illegal and in the case of uh, this particular race which is taking place in the robot planet um of course a military action as we see and uh this is just a really fun movie it's absolutely stunningly animated and i think even if you're not a fan of anime if it's really sort of accessible at the same time as it sort of avoids all the usual anime tropes it's just all about action all the way it's just a real sort of old school title in that way and um, I think if, as I say, if you're a fan of things like, you know, Death Race and um you know, Fast and Furious movies and want to see like a really out there anime version of uh, of of that, then Redline certainly delivers uh, in that respect.
1: It's not gonna surprise you that I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you yeah know, I don't I think, that's think that's a, like a, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good um, or bad thing. I I I mean often when you talk about things I have I have an awareness of them um never ever heard ah yes okay so right yeah sorry i'm just reading the wikipedia here <laughs> and uh yeah some other things um okay. links to it i've understood yeah no it sounds fascinating um sounds a bit like a, a sort of uh hardcore japanese speed racer or something like that so uh
0: yeah definitely uh taps into that same sort of uh of uh, speed racer definitely i think again it's one of those sort of uh, properties where you've seen the story sort of time and time again um, but here it's just sort of taken to that sort of next level it feels like very much like an old school sort of anime in that respect to just like how sort of uh, out there and and just completely crazy it is it's just sort of like if you're like a a car that just like or how far can we push like extreme sort of vehicles and stuff so of
1: course
0: okay Okay, uh, so obviously continuing the list at uh, 21, we got the Boxer from Shang Tung, a Shaw Brothers uh, classic. And uh, here, the, um, a young guy named uh, Mei Yong Chen arrives in Shanghai and befriends a local gang, uh, Tan Si, and who initially he's like reluctant to get involved in the criminal underworld and basically starts to get a lust for sort of power and starts his own sort of rise to being the criminal top dog. So. In many ways, this is like the kung fu version of Scarface, and we've talked before about the um, the movie Man of Iron, which is a spiritual sequel of sorts to to this one. But Boxer and Shantung is just absolutely a fantastic uh, little kung fu movie, and as I say, it's so different, the fact it's about this guy being slowly crushed by power and trying to rise up a criminal enterprise rather than you know the heroic warrior taking down the uh, criminal enterprise. So. It's probably most noteworthy though for the fantastic um, fight scene which takes place in a tavern which it essentially gets decimated and oh well, he spends most of the fight with a hatchet lodged in his torso but this is just a really fantastic um, kung fu movie and uh, one that's definitely worth checking out. Uh, you can actually get on Amazon Prime which is really great, there's a lot of good Shaw Brothers movies on there uh, so definitely one worth hunting down. Um, uh, at number 20 uh, we've got full time killer uh, this one sees uh, Andy Laurie teaming up with Johnny Toe and uh, this time also being joined by Kai Fo. as the two uh, basically play rival assassins one's their uh, sort of old hand who is uh, trying to get out of the game and we've got a new up and comer um, who is basically trying to make a name for himself and The two are basically set on this collision course to basically see who is ultimately number one. Uh, This is just a really fun sort of modern action shoot 'em up uh, movie. It's got uh, some really fun moves, and it's kind of uh, fun when you obviously look at uh, the new um, look at Andy Lowe's uh, character uh, who plays Toc he's this uh, flamboyant um, assassin so he's not when we uh compare him to oh who's uh, like the old hand who's like doing everything sort of sully he's kind of like leon in the professional and we look at Tok who basically shows up wearing a bill clinton mask and paying homage to his favorite action movies and uh has like all the subtlety of a half brick and a sock so it's just uh, really fun seeing these uh, opposing styles and when we, ult- we get the ultimate showdown in a fireworks factory as the two run around uh, trying to best each other in this sort of assassination games. It's just a really fun time throughout and one which I'm surprised sort of fell kind of by the wayside. It's the one of those sort of second um, run sort of titles, you know, alongside the likes of um, Bittersweet Life where we obviously had that initial run of, of titles that gave us that revival of interest in Asian cinema, and then this was one of the titles put out by Asia Extreme uh, on Tartan, and um, for some reason it just never seemed to get the sort of attention it deserved, even though it's got sort of all those sort of John Woo sort of moves in place to sort of really make it a film, <coughs> a film that um I would have yeah thought it would it's, have, it's uh, interesting because um so Johnny Toe obviously has his
1: has his fans. People are quite um. People love a Johnny Toe movie, don't they? And um, also, it's based on a book by um, Edmund Pang, um, you know, the guy who directed Bulgaria and Love and a Puff and all that. Um, so it, it is indeed. I mean, he's one of my favourite directors, and we might talk about some more of his films in my twenty-five. But yeah, so, so he was a, he was a novelist before he was a filmmaker, <laughs> and it's um, based on one of his books. So it's got that kind of sort of. I don't know that 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 sense of humour running through it as well, but yeah, it it is odd because like like I say, most most students and fans of Hong Kong cinema are always very um. They've, there's always a Johnny Toe movie in there, but it's very rarely Full Time Killer, which is which is
0: strange. Yeah, and certainly when, it, when you look at like the popular genres within Hong Kong cinema, I mean it's always action and heroic gunplay movies that. Are sort of up there with like kung fu movies and you know the triad movies and and whatnot so it's as I say it's always surprising that you have this one sort of fall by the wayside and I think it's much like uh, Chae Young Fats like Full Contact I think it's one of those films that people are slowly re- sort of discovering but it's um, just always surprised mm. me it's not got more of a following cool. than it has so um another film you could also say about uh, that bout is uh, my number 19 pick and that's Pompoco from Studio Ghibli um as uh Echo Tanahata uh, basically taps into the uh, Tanuku myth where Tanuku are basically shapeshifting raccoons and we've seen them in numerous films before. We I think um Jinsen Suzuki l- l- covered the myth in Princess Raccoon, which was like one of his sort of final films and here we've got that sort of classic battle between you know nature and industry as uh, these Raccoons are threatened uh, by urban development moving in on their woods and basically have to use their shape-shifting supernatural talents to try and repel uh, the human in- in invasion. Um, while this isn't probably the most polished of the uh, Ghibli movies, there's a really random parade sequence, which has no relevance to anything whatsoever, and we also get to see some raccoon nutsacks used in a very unique way, which... Um, Maybe the reason why this one isn't as most talked about when we compare it to like you know like Kiki and House Moving Castle and Spirited Away, uh, Pom has always been like that middle tier for the uh, the Ghibli catalog, and it's kind of a shame because it is full of some really fun comical moments and it's got some real yeah it's interesting it's an well.
1: interesting one to pick it's not it's not one that I you know I I have a um, any particular love love or hate for I guess some of it, it it's lack of. Well, I guess there's two things which, which which hold it back is you know, it, it it's Takahata director, so you know, that's not um it's not it's, it's not the main the, the people that the main director that people associate with um Kubely. And also yeah. the um as you said, um raccoon nutsacks or um or as um as as Wikipedia <laughs> calls it, prominent scrotums. <laughs>
0: I just love the design of these characters, though they're so comical and full of full of life, mm. and they drum on their stomachs. And it, even when you see them like in the raccoon form, it's like really adorable how they're animated their their movements. And then you see them when they become they morph into the more humanoid form. And whenever they, there's a a fight sequence at the start where one of them gets hit over the head, and the more injured they get, the more simplistic their drawings become. Um, so it becomes the, you see this, this, um, raccoon basically turned into like a, almost like a, a balloon shape, um, sort of design. it's just, as I say, I, for some reason I just find this movie just really charming. It's much like The Cat Returns, it's, it, it's got a real sort of charm to it, but for some reason it just doesn't seem to uh ha- perhaps it doesn't like play up to the whimsy of like, uh, the more popular titles that, um, it doesn't get its referenced as much, but I still think it's a really sort of charming movie, and one I am always keen to uh we visit whenever actually, it comes back actually on. Suitable
1: so. for this show because we don't tend to go for the the, the 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 obvious picks, do we? So, yeah, I approve. Mm.
0: Um, well, obviously, the obvious pick for my number eighteen would have been to go with the Raid Redemption. If we're talking about absolute bone breaking action packed, jaw dropping kung fu movies and instead I chose to go for the rather unique follow-up to Ong Bak which was chocolate um, in which a autistic girl discovers she has the ability to imitate the kung fu movies she watches uh, which comes in real handy as he sets about reclaiming the debts of her g- former gangster mother who's become uh, recently ill, when they're struggling to pay a medical bills, so um, Zen, this uh, young girl, sets out to start reclaiming the debts, and what leads to some really outstanding uh, fight sequences and all oh, building up to a real.
1: This is the first one on your list, but so. it's also on mine. <laughs>
2: so,
1: yeah, I, I absolutely. It's probably <laughs> really? my favourite martial arts movie. um uh I, I i'm not i'm not okay. sure why it's got it's it's got a certain style to it um i'm always been a fan of sort of the the Thai martial arts anyway yeah. and it's you know it's, it looks it's, it's got the it's got the cinematography and the lensing of a film of its time which i wonder if it'll look dated now but yeah it was like one of the first blu-rays i ever bought and and yeah it's just it's style i think um What's the girl called, um, yeah, well, she goes by the name Gija, but Yannin Tanada, I think, um, should have been a superstar, and it never quite worked for her, but, um, yeah, it, you, you could pick any, um, martial arts film by, um, Pratchett, Pinkow, and, uh, you would have a, a fun time but i think chocolate's got, it's got something a little bit else to it it's also got Hiroshi Abe in it who's my one of my favorite japanese actors uh in it um and yeah it's, it's just fun and imaginative as well and and the martial arts is freaking fantastic <laughs> so yeah I, I approve and now i've got to go and find another one to fill that hole <laughs> <clears throat>
0: It's funny that that this is the film mm. that followed on from Ombak because obviously when Ombak came out and Tony Jaa basically disappeared for a num- number of months, and they, I think they ended up finding him in the middle of the jungle in a in a monastery somewhere. He was basically hiding out, and this is the film that they chose to do do as a follow up in the meantime. And it's such a, a weird moved to go from Ong Bak to this film which is kind of sweet and got a real sort of charm to it, but at the same time yeah, it has that same sort of standard martial like arts made, action um, to it. So. Raging
1: Phoenix, I think they made it the same year or the year after, which is which is fine and a lot of fun as well. And then her career just Disappeared. <laughs> um, I caught her in a um, Indonesian TV show the last time I saw mm-hmm. her. She was in the second series of Half Worlds, and the only reason I know that is because I had to review it for Eastern Kicks and just think, "What happened to you, girl?" <laughs> but uh, I think I think she um I think she became a mother and uh, decided <laughs> to um, to concentrate on that. But yeah, she's kind of interesting because you know, obviously, you know, how many. Female action stars, do we have? And and here's here's one who's Thai. Um, so so nice. Yeah, great, great, cool, great movie. Um, probably one I was thinking about bringing along to the show one day. So hopefully we'll talk about it more then.
0: Yeah, I mean obviously talking about female action stars. I mean you have to obviously check out uh, Zoe Bell's um, Boss Bitch Battle, which is on on YouTube if you've not already. Where um, Zoe Bell, obviously the Tarantino's favorite stunt woman of choice rounds up her friends and engages in an epic battle um, across YouTube so okay at 17 we've got Summer Wars um this is a really absolutely stunning anime um here we've got the young student called Kenji who's basically um got a real sort of gift for mathematics he's a part-time moderator of this simulated virtual reality uh, world known as Oz and um along with his friend is basically implicated in the hacking of this world by an a artificial intelligence named Love Machine and basically he has to find a way to defeat this AI before it takes over Oz. Uh, this is a really stunning anime and it's up there with the likes, you know, Paprika and of just the level of detail that's in this world and just I think when you we, the fact we've obviously considered Akira as being this benchmark of animation for so many years, I mean that came out around 86 and again we were looking at the, the detail in there and it took really until Ghost goes to the show before we saw that sort of level of detail in anime again and then we have uh, these have films such as like Paprika and uh, some words that come out and it just reminds us of just how good anime can be uh, in the right hands and it's not always just about fan service and giant robots and explosions and extreme gore and tentacles and demons and schoolgirls and all that fun stuff and uh, you can actually do some really fun and interesting stories with it yeah, as well. Yeah everything and you said some Wars is um, just a real yeah, I'm a guy who doesn't like that.
1: this stuff and I love Summer Wars um, it, it's, it's a bit like some of the other films that we've spoken about you know it would have been a good film if it wasn't animated you know, to, to to me, it's up there with um, you know, like perfect okay. blue and the and and the like. You know, the fact the fact that it's animated probably saves on the budget a bit, but uh, you know, it, it 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 has a similar, <laughs> not identical, but a similar thing to something like you know Spielberg's Ready Player One, and I know, and 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 I know which one I would rather. Oh yeah, watch definitely. Again. So yeah, and it ain't Spielberg's one. You know, um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, re- really really good choice. Um. I'm a big fan of uh, the previous film The Girl Who Leapt Through Time as well which is um, the same same crew I believe
0: mm. uh, Yes it's Madhouse I believe uh, the one people responsible for it but no Girl Who Left Through Time is another one that I keep saying I'm going to bring to the show much like Summer Wars and um, the director also did uh, mm-hmm. The Beast and, and the Boy uh, which is a dumb film I've talked about on, on the uh, show which it was enjoyable but it, it failed to sort of hit the notes of those previous movies that you obviously mentioned and um the wolf children i've yet to see as well but it's just sort of really throwing a new bar though and when we obviously looked at the fact that when we lost um uh sion sono not sion sono i know you mean um, the guy did paprika yeah <laughs> Satoshi Khan. Uh we lost Satoshi Kon, so we had panic attack for people there. Um we lost Satoshi Khan so early in his career and you were sort of like, well who's gonna take up the mantle and you see things like some Wars you realise, you know, there are still directors out there who've got some got some surprises to give us so. Um Now the next title I'm gonna choose I've it's one that I sort of step in and out of every couple of years um, or so, but I feel that it's just very important in terms of Asian cinema, and certainly in terms of cult uh, Agent Simba, and that's uh, Shinse Tetsakamoto's Tetsuo the Iron Man. We went into this pretty deep with both this and its sequel, uh, Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer, and obviously this story of the Japanese salaryman who has a run-in with a metal fetishist and suddenly finds his body turning into... Is it part metal, part machine? It's who really knows what's going on, but it's a frenzied sixty minutes of uh, filmmaking that is comparable to David Lynch's *Eraserhead*, and certainly feels like an experience that goes on a lot longer than it does. Uh, but at, while it's probably not my favourite film, I, at the same time, I still feel it's like such an important film that to not include it on my list would be doing it a disservice. So. Uh, that's part of the reason why I'm included, but uh, yeah, Tetsuo the Iron Man. It's a film that I'm both shocked and yeah, fascinated I, I, by I at agree. the same time.
1: Um, it's it's not my favourite film either, um, and uh, just exactly what you say. Isn't it? It's an important film. It's a film. I I I, I see obviously we talked about this only a few weeks ago on, on a previous episode um, <coughs> um, mm. the, the second film I can live with or without third film I haven't seen but this film every time I watch it it makes me feel and it disturbs me and intrigues me in equal measure and for something that's basically a sort of a low budget the indiest of indie Japanese films um it's just it's just amazing yeah it's, it's 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 important and it's the kind of thing which japanese cinema doesn't do anymore or if it does it does it in a in a sort of sexualized pandery leery kind of way whereas this is this is primal so yeah go and listen to that episode of ours and you'll see why we both like it
0: hmm. yeah it's um it's funny cuz it obviously taps into the American cyberpunk again we see that that crossing of uh, cultures from from west to east and then it inspired a whole new brand of cyberpunk from over in the, the states of like direct young directors who saw like Tetsuo and tried to replicate it with mixed results should we say um but uh, 15 is a film that I do absolutely adore uh, that's Michelle Yeoh's uh, magnificent warriors Um, This is uh, set in um, 1938 uh, with a Chinese war with the Japanese. And basically she plays a bounty hunter slash sort of rebellion leader who's basically uh, brought in to help destroy a uh, poison gas factory that is being built in this uh, city. Um, It's a really fun action movie. Michelle Yeoh just absolutely you know she just owns the screen and this was like one of the last films she made before she took her early retirement because she got married to, to the producer of this film in fact and thankfully it's, it's so bizarre when we talk about uh, michelle yor's marriage because it's like one of those marriages you were glad that it failed because it meant that she could go back to being an actress again um and i'm so glad that she did and i think if you want to see why people are so obsessed with like michelle yo i think magnificent warriors is just an absolute perfect showcase and the fact that here she's playing front and center it's her leading role she's not having to be there as like support like we saw in like super cop or she's having to like share the screen with like two other legends like we see with her right trio it's you know it's michelle yo getting to absolutely have a leading role and she didn't really get too many as far as i'm aware. I were when it came to sort of like leading roles in sort of uh, martial arts movies. And we sort of had this and we had like Silver Hawk, which is uh, kind of a bit mixed. But um, no, Magnificent Warriors is just a really fun Kung Fu romp. And yeah. it's got some really great action beats along the way. But um, no, Michelle have she's always, as I said, she's just like one of those timeless leading ladies i mean whether we're seeing her in these early films or we're seeing her in uh films such as like crashing tiger and the dragon which it along with like um to never die sort of really opened and i think it induced a lot of people to her that probably wasn't aware of her films that she was obviously making in in like the hong kong system so but um yeah i think she's she's also one of those actresses who's Managed to make the transition and able to sort of make films in Hollywood and make films obviously, um, in in Hong Kong still. So she's one of the few who's able to still go back and forth. Because normally we see actors like come across and they either like stay on one side or the other. Uh, like Cherry, in fact, came across, made about three or four movies and went back. Jet Li came over and sort of <laughs> apparently liked it so much he stayed and really hasn't gone back and made a huge amount of movies. Back I mean, in, I guess um, Michelle Yeoh is her, Hong Kong. She's really. actually
1: Malaysian. So her English is really rather good, <laughs> and I, I think that has helped with the transition. Yeah. But she, you know she's she, what I love about her is is that she 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 doesn't. Yeah, yes, she does turn up to be the Asian character, but in the you know if if you look at sort of roles that she's been in, you know she's been everything from memoirs to a, a gay show, Crouching Tiger episode, just Star um sorry Star Trek Discovery the. TV show um i really liked her in um oh, what was the film when she was ang sunsuki um uh, the lady which i know a lot of a lot of people didn't like but she was really really oh, yes. good in a in a purely dramatic role um and that mm,
0: but she, she i liked she, in she, sunshine she just
1: yeah she's uh, obviously she's a bond girl as well but i think she was a, a very different kind of bond girl if, I mean that that film was a dreadful tiresome mess but um, I th- I seem to remember she was probably the best thing about <laughs> it
0: <laughs> yeah I mean she was sort of like the when you look at her sort of character she sort of would follow her on from what they start with GoldenEye where they were going to have like tougher Bond girls they weren't just going to be these damsels in distress and I think she really the fact that she's a, a Chinese secret agent um she's there with with dual machine guns which she actually said she regretted because she pestered the director for like weeks and weeks about having two machine guns <laughs> and then she found that she could barely hold them up so she was like not wanting to like go back on her way so she, you see her like just struggling to these two guns like constantly that's why she's constantly like, jumping out yeah
1: a proper superstar of of both east and west i think and um I, I can't help thinking, I, yeah, I've done her a disservice because I, I've watched so few of her films.
0: Okay. Um, next up is the movie spin-off of a series which I've just banged on and on and on and on about, and that's Girls on Panzer, the movie. Um, Girls on Panzer is probably one of my favourite anime series. It's up there with uh, Kim God Kill, um, and uh, more recently the likes you know like My Hero Academia and One Punch Man are just these really fun anime series that don't um, tend to fall into the usual sort of traits of, uh, of when people think of like the anime anime series and I to, even though Girls and Panzer was a short 12 uh, episode season uh, the movie just was a perfect compliment as it uh, sees the girls of Urai Academy who despite the fact that they win the championship to keep their academy open Um, and now find that they're having to take part in another uh, match against the university team, Shensei Do, who in a battle which uh, sees their eight tanks going up against 30 tanks um While the first one was kind of like grounded in tank tactics and had sort of like a light-hearted comedy to it, uh, this one just goes full pelt with just the comedic antics. So if you want to see tanks flying through the air and doing outlandish things, um, this is just a really lot of fun. And it just doesn't take itself too seriously. It's not full of fan service like uh, we've seen with other similar series, such as like Strike Witches. So it's... uh, it's just like a really fun, accessible, you know, cute girls and tanks anime. And I think it's a perfect uh, complement to, to the uh, series. Um, now I'm just hoping that uh, they hurry up and release the final episodes of this uh, final chapter series that are currently releasing theatrically at the moment. So we've had the first two yet uh, still waiting their dubs or subtitle releases so hopefully they hurry up and get those out soon because uh this is a series i really want more of you've spoken about it before obviously i've never seen it but you know
1: you you do you do you do speak about it Netflix. with such um <laughs> you such passion that i feel i feel bad that i haven't followed it up and <laughs> uh so, oops, sorry yeah so um yeah maybe maybe i will one day
0: Maybe. Yeah, you've got to watch Cowboys and that, Because Cowboy well, it's so. ready in June. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> um, next one is a film, uh, which is part of a trilogy. Which, uh, if we're to believe Tarantino's writing, in True Romance is the perfect date night, and uh, that's the Street Fighter with Sonny Chiba who plays uh, Terry, who's basically a killer for hire, who gets caught in the centre of a accusing chinese trier plot to kill nap the daughter of a wealthy oil executive. Uh, this is really sort of noteworthy for being the first film to receive an X-rate in the United States, solely for the violence. Uh, in the UK, it was released as Kung Fu Street Fighter, which I believe is just to avoid that confusion with the Charles Bronson movie Hard Times, uh, which was originally initially released as the Street Fighter here in the UK. Um he went on to spawn two sequels, The Street Fighter Uh Returns and Street Fighter's Last Revenge, as well as the sister Street Fighter um saga of films, which is also really fun as well. Uh but no, Street Fighter's just Sony Chiba doing what best. He's just yeah. a, a badass <laughs> who does bad things <laughs> to bad people. Um yeah, no yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I can't claim to be uh um
1: particularly well-versed. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of this film. I've actually got the Sister Street Fighter collection, <laughs> but I've only got round to watching the first one, but uh, I guess that, that doesn't count, does it, as in this. But, oh, yeah. right. I'm aware of I'm, a, I'm aware They're of such They're nuts, YouTuber. those films so, are. Um, <laughs> he deserves
0: his place on this list. Um, Next up at 12 is Tiger on the Beat, uh, which sees Charlie Yun-Fat and Conan Lee as a mitch-match buddy comedy team. Um, basically, Cherry on Fat does the heroic gunplay, Conan Lee does the hard kicks. It's just a perfect blending of style, as I like to co- add the tagline, they kill you all kinds of dead. Uh, this film's also really notable for featuring uh, Gordon Liu, gets involved in a chainsaw duel with uh, Conan Lee in the fantastic finale, uh, which is just absolutely just packed with uh, so much originality but um this is a film was also directed by uh gordon luke who uh, shows himself just as capable behind the camera as he is on the screen but um no it's a really fun action comedy and one well worth checking out especially if you're a fan of like 80s I- i've hong never kong heard of this somewhere. one
1: and i feel terrible because it sounds like the kind of action sort of hong kong 80s action comedy nonsense that i adore <laughs> so this one's definitely going on the investigate <laughs> list
0: um now and number 11 <laughs> i've got a slight change in the list i sent you so this is gonna be fun for you um is another anime and that's pat Labore, uh which is the first full-length adaptation of the anime series um, in which the police use giant mecha or giant robots to the initiated uh, To help keep law and order in the uh, city This is from the uh, director of Ghost in the Shell, but it's a much more light-hearted fair and certainly less deep on the old philosophical musings than that film was. But at the same time, it's a one-part detective story, one-part giant mecca, um, all rounding up in a huge giant mecha brawl as a uh, strange virus is sending mecha wild in the city. This is just a really fun film, even if you've not seen the series, it's really easy to get into and, and pick up. And there's also one of the animes out there which has just got a really fun dub as well. So if you're not a fan of subtitles, this obviously of i'm on will, a run uh, of I haven't seen it <laughs> <type of film. laughs> Okay, number 10. uh, We've got uh, another Stuart Ghibli movie, another middle tier one as well, and that's Porco Rosso, uh, which sees a hotshot pilot with a pig's head um, running his own racket in 1930s Italy where the skies are full of air pirates, bounty hunters, and high flyers. Um, Here he's running his own racket and finds himself being challenged by a rival pilot um, who is determined to to bring the pig down but as the tagline says you believe a pig can fly um, but this has got a really memorable finale where we have these two hotshot pilots <laughs> first off trying to gun each other down then resorting to throwing junk at each other and then ultimately just having a really humorous fist fight on the beach <laughs> there's just nothing not to like about this film i think it's just got so good natured it's taps into Mozaki's love of flying machines and it's just so beautifully shot and animated and in many ways, feels like a spiritual sequel, as such, to uh, *Laputa: Castle in the Sky*. Just the yeah, matter. I mean, this is, both this films is feature um, a group of sky pirates. Feels like a Miyazaki
1: passion project. Um, he made the other film, didn't he, about the people that uh, the, the the more recent one about someone who invented an aeroplane or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Um, which there was some issues around that, but um, oh, the wind. Rises. Yeah, he obviously loves that stuff, and and yeah. um, this is my stepfather's favorite. Well, I think it's one of his favourite films. So, um, yeah, it's got got some crossover the generations as well. Um, it's a be- it's beautiful as well. Actually, I think it's one of the most attractive um, Ghibli films. Um, don't don't know why. I just think it's, it's got a really nice, really nice style about it. So, yeah, unusual choice, I would say. i um, very much the as you were sort of suggesting that sort of second rank of them, the, the one for the completists. But if you, if you haven't seen it, it's it's well worth. Um, well worth checking out because you know pigs and planes can't go wrong.
2: Come
0: on. <laughs> uh, number nine is another film that I feel never gets the due it uh, deserves, and that's Save the Green Planet, um, a film which is currently set to be remade uh, by the director. Um, the film it sees a young man who believes that aliens from Andromeda are about to attack Earth and that he's the only one who can prevent them. And teaming up with his circus performer girlfriend kidnaps the executive of a pharmaceutical company who he believes to be an extraterrestrial. Uh, what follows is <coughs> a film which plays jump rope with genres as we see it go from being a light-hearted comedy to a torture comedy and then ultimately a very dark thriller. In um, a film which just somehow manages to move effortlessly from one genre to the next. But this is certainly a really unique film and certainly one to check out if you would like and your And This is the Black, second film um, that was going to be on down.
1: my list. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I really like it too. <laughs> and um, we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago, um, which made me realise I didn't actually own it on DVD, which I have since. Um, I've since got the old Tartan 2 Disco. Um, so i'll um i'll be revisiting that very soon but it's 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 an amazing film Uh, we we talk a lot about sort of the genre jumping that can happen in um in korean cinema and and this film is the poster boy for that it's um i think we talked about it when we were talking about um oh it was a gangster film we watched um bittersweet life um and, and and you know it's yeah, it it, it, it yes. changes what's going on. It's crazy, and 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 the director didn't make another film for years after this. Um, but then, why would you if you've made something as magnificent as this? And um, yeah, it's as it's as high up on your list as it is on mine. In um, fact, nearly made my first twenty-five. So um, yeah, great movie.
0: Number eight is another Kung Fu classic, and that's Jet Li's Fist of Legend, his remake of Fist of Fury, the Bruce Lee classic. If you've not obviously seen Fist of Legend, it's one of the most outstanding films of Jet Li's filmography, uh, including a really lengthy fight sequence, which is certainly up there with the likes of Once Upon a Time in China 2's uh, fight against Donnie Yen um, as being one of those outstanding sort of martial arts sequences. And certainly watching it now, it's a really... Interesting adaptation of the Bruce Lee movie because I mean Fist of Fury, while it's certainly good, I never really rated it as one of it being like one of the top Bruce Lee movies. I so we always sort of leaned away to the you know the likes of Enter the Dragon Way of the, um, and where the and where the dragon rather than um, Fist of Fist of Fury, but. Certainly, *Fist of Legend*. It's while it's a remake, it's thankfully does its own thing, and certainly with its final showdown sequence is just absolutely jaw dropping. Just not only for its length, but also the absolute skill that's on demonstration here. And if you've yet to see it, yeah, it's I'll echo worth, that. Um, worth checking out. Cause it is also, I magic. love
1: the film set in sort of nineteen. 19- uh, early early twentieth century Shanghai. I think there's an aesthetic there that I love, which is this. And I'd also recommend the sort of pseudo sequel um, that stars uh, Donnie Yen, uh, Legend of the First Return of Chen Zhen, which is is, is also a, a bundle of fun as well. Um, so yeah, good another good call. I'm not going to disagree with you.
0: Come. Um, number seven is a from a, uh, film from a director who we do forget does also make Asian cinema. And that's Ang Lee's Lost Caution, a film which I only recently discovered over on my other show, Movies and Tea, when we were doing our Ang Lee season. And we obviously went back and we looked at his whole filmography and you realise that some of his best films are the ones he's he's done, uh, or you know, his contributions to Asian cinema. We're not just talking about like Crutch, Tiger and Dragon, but like his father knows best trilogy, which uh, was uh, include Pushing Hands, The Wedding Banquet, and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Uh, the latter of those featuring some serious food porn. Uh, but Lost Caution is an absolutely outstanding thriller, in which a group of students decide to assassinate a government official. The film itself can really be seen as two separate films as uh, we have the sort of initial assassination attempt by the students and then we see some of these uh, students come back again and uh, teamed up with the rebellious forces to try and take a second crack at uh, assassinating this government official laying a honey trap plot uh, which uh, ultimately gets rather confusing when real motions start to cloud people's judgment but um no, Lost Caution, if you've not seen it and perhaps dismissed it because it would be in an Ang Lee movie, really doing yourself a disservice as this is one that is just really checking out. Um, it's just absolutely fantastic even if it did end up with the leading lady being blacklisted for a number of years and yeah, to hang out in, you know, in this It's, it's weird. I think I need film.
1: to go back and watch this film because I was not um, I was not as enchanted by it as you were. In fact, I seem to remember I was quite bored. But but mm. I I wonder. I wonder if it's that's one of those things. Oh, really? Just, just the time I happened to watch it, I just didn't get into it. And maybe I'd enjoy it now more. Because you have... Um, you've spoken about it a few times. Obviously, you've talked about it over movies and tea as well. Um, it's clearly had an effect on you. And... Obviously, the sort of films that I give you that bore you <laughs> means means that if I've been bored by it, it can't it can't be right. So I um I remember it being very lush, very very well produced, very well made. Um, big fan of, of of the two leads. You got a bit yeah. of Joan Chen as well, and um, and uh, Taiwanese pop star Wang Lee Homs in it as well, if I remember rightly. So I think I'm going to revisit this because.
0: I must be wrong mm. it's I mean it's, I'm not gonna lie I mean it is a long film but at the same time it doesn't feel like it's going on for long as it as long as it does and the story same, the story and the plotting is really engrossing the production value as you mentioned already it's just absolutely lush throughout. so it's one of the films I saw it and then I just couldn't stop really, like talking about it it was like on all the or um, my usual Facebook hangouts, you know, like Asian cinema takeouts and German's Guide to Midnight Cinema and just going, has anyone seen The Last Caution? The Last Cushion, you have to see this movie. So I got um, a little <laughs> overexcited about that one. But no, I think it's a real hidden gem in the Angleese filmography. And up there with the likes of, you know, Wedding Banquet and uh, Eat Drink Man Woman is just these films that you don't realise that Ang Lee directed because you get caught up in like you know Brokeback Mountain and the Ice Storm and Crash and Ticket and Hidden Dragon and while those films are certainly good um I think that his films that he's done his contributions to Asian cinema have just been so above what he was uh, obviously doing within like the Hollywood system so yeah but my, absolutely in my humble opinion anyway um Number six is a, another Kung Fu movie, which takes the concept of what if we made the training sequences the whole movie? I'm of course talking about God and Lu's 36th Chamber of Shaolin, uh, another Shaw Brothers classic, as uh, God and Lu plays a young man who joins the Shaolin Temple to fight back against the oppressive man Chou government and uh, basically he has to work his way through the 35 chambers of Shaolin initially deciding that he can start at number 35 only to get his ass royally handed to him and send him way back to number one and it's just such a fun kung fu movie just seeing how he develops this sort of fighting his fighting style um, and how he tackles each of the challenges these rooms present just a really uh, fantastic film. Another Reza of uh, Wu Tang Clan's uh, big fan. He done, there is a DVD out which he provides the commentary for. Um, I believe it's Celestial Pictures release that uh, has that because the release of uh, King Boxer or Five Things of Death has Quentin Tarantino doing a commentary for it. Uh, but this film did spawn two sequels: uh, Return to Face X Chamber. Uh, first, Six Ch- chamber and uh, disciples of first six Ch- chamber, uh, both of which are, are great in their own respect as well. But um, no, first six Ch- chamber shall then. I think it's just a real sort of standout kung fu movie, not only for Shaw Brothers but just as for its addition to the genre. And rightfully, it was recognised in the 1001 movies to see before you die, where uh, yeah, it's definitely deserved it to place put up at number thirty six
1: on the list. Yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> it's a classic of the genre whether you like kung fu movies or not you know it, it's 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 a Shaw Brothers standard um there's a handful of them um or films like that and, and and you were going to always pick one of them in fact I'm surprised it wasn't on our original 50 actually it's 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 so iconic so and absolutely it's um it's uh inspired the RZA quite a lot because I'm pretty certain. Loads of it's been put onto uh, Wu Tang Clan albums and his own stuff as well.
0: <laughs> they they do, yeah. <laughs> they love the Shore Brothers. They, uh um, and it's it's fun when you go through like the Wu Tang albums and you like try and find all the references. Um. That they have, and just I mean the fact that these they are extremely knowledgeable about it is not just a gimmick. It's not like oh let's be like kung fu yeah, uh, hip hop artists. Yeah, they actually they, do know this about it a lot. You know? um, they, they they would watch these stuff.
1: movies. This is something that they would bond over, and and yeah, and 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 all the little clips and the ideas and the words are all, all in their music and obviously that fantastic video for gravel pit where the new, where they, where, they, where the kung fu guys turn up and fight dinosaurs and
0: stuff yeah fantastic <laughs> i'm a fan <laughs> um <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, okay, number five is another martial arts movie. There's quite a lot of them on the, my list. Um, this is another one which falls in the same sort of category as the likes of Crouching and Dragon It's sort of escalating the genre to that higher echelon. And I'm of course, talking about Jet Li's final martial arts epic, Fearless, uh, which is a biography of Chinese martial arts master Hyo Joan who is the founder and spiritual guru of the Jinwoo Sports Federation. Uh, if you can, try and get a hold of the director's cut of this, as it does feature Michelle Yeoh and moves the film around as the order's a little bit different, uh, but also features an additional fight scene with Jet uh, Li taking on a Thai fighter in the rice paddies, uh, which is also worth checking. But no, seeing this martial arts master going from being a sort of brash bully in many ways who's sort of determined to be the number one and when he finally achieves it realises that it means absolutely nothing Um, self exiles himself and rediscovers himself to come back and really empower the Chinese people and it's a film which features so many memorable moments it's got the wonderful showdown sequence which if you're watching the original cut you get to see the start of um, at the beginning of the film if you're watching the director's cut they actually move the whole of the tournament sequence to the end uh, so it's completely up to yourself how you prefer whether you have, prefer to have that sort of strong opening or you prefer to have a more slow burn opening but both versions are really fantastic it's not one of those films where one version sort of superior than the other it's just really sort of a yeah, a another another taste, great choice, and with. with fearless,
1: it was two thousand six. Fearless, right? Um, that without fearless, I don't think you'd have had the Ip Man films, which which yeah. were a couple of years later. They're 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 very much um, oh no of around course not. looking for um, the Chinese people, looking for more modern heroes you know, within the last hundred year kind of heroes. Um, Real, real life people um fighting against the yoke of foreign imperialism whether it be japanese whether it be western um but it's just a really really good movie and um i'm pretty certain my blu-ray's got both versions on it but i, I think i just watched the i guess what's called the extended cut i don't know what that means <laughs> but uh, but yeah it's um yeah really good really good choice
0: okay Um, I mean the film also features Nathan Jones who's probably one of my favourite character actors he's the hero plays as uh, Hercules O'Brien and uh, you've probably seen him he was also in Warrior King um, he had a short stint in the WWE as uh, as the Goliath of Bogo Road um, his actual history um, as a former armed <laughs> robber who got imprisoned and started finding redemption through doing um, deadlift championships and that's uh basically how he found redemption for himself but no he's always fascinating like big guy who i'm always interested always excited to see i mean he turns up in troy for about five seconds and he's also uh, in fury road as well there's a the big muscular bold guy at number four is a film which i think we both really enjoyed when we covered it on the film on the uh, show and um it's a uh, surprisingly another christmas movie which i'm constantly told doesn't exist within Asian cinema, but yet we keep stumbling across them. Um, so I'm, of course, talking about... um talk about Satoshi Kon's Tokyo Godfathers, um, in which a trio of homeless people discover a baby um, on the streets of uh, Tokyo and set out to find the... set out to reunite it with parents along the way, finding more about themselves. And I think this is just a really touching film. It's a real departure from... Con's usual um, sort of areas of interest which are more like thrillers and dreams um, and sort of surreal worlds and here he gives a very sort of grounded and very touching tale of these free homeless people just trying to find the parents of this this young baby they stumble across and along the way you sort of learn how they came to end up on the streets and in many ways they I find their own this redemption the for this and for the first time I watched that they first themselves I absolutely themselves.
1: loved it and, and... You know, it's not only just sort of a touching story. Yeah, it's set at Christmas time, and but but there's there's this sort of level of detail about it. There's a there's there's obviously the whole um, sort of a positive uh, transgender person in it, which is not something we always see in Asian cinema, um, and. Yeah, it's just really, it's just really, really nice and touching, and a very elwood like film. And uh, I I just, we both, we both really enjoyed it. Um,
0: So yeah, good call. Okay, uh, number three um, is a title which I think will come as a little surprise to anyone, and that's uh, Godzilla vs. Gigan. Um, This is one of my old-time favorite uh, Godzilla movies. It's up there with Destroy All Monsters, which made up. Previous list. Um, this time we get to see uh, Gigan and uh, King Ghidorah team uh, teaming up to take on the forces of Godzilla and Anglus when space aliens decide to try and take over the world using these monsters, um, all under the cover of a Godzilla replica building, which they use as their base of operations in a. F- Monster World theme park. Um, this is a film most noteworthy for featuring Godzilla and Angler's talking, which, if you're watching the Japanese uh, cut, will feature them talking speech bubbles, or if you're watching the dub, features some really bizarre voice acting uh, where they try to have these two characters talk. But, funnily enough, this wouldn't be the weirdest thing to ever happen in a Godzilla movie, as uh, let's not forget in Godzilla vs. Hedora, or Godzilla vs. Smog Monster, he flies. But um, no, I think this is just a really fun movie. It features four of my old time favourite monsters from the Godzilla monster verse. Um, well, fair and, enough. This uh, was on my list. Now it's just fun all the um... way. <laughs> <laughs> Although I am aware of it now, I would have been surprised if it was. Bubbles,
1: I um I, I do yeah I I'm surprised there aren't more Godzilla on here. Actually, I would. I, I'm I'm shocked and disappointed, but. Uh, you, you you are, but a bit. I know. This and then is like down um, on so This is from an era of of Godzilla as fun. I think it, 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 it's 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 is is what we're trying to say here. Obviously, you know. Yes, My, my love of the original Godzilla <clears throat> and yours as well. You know, is is well, well well-known and obviously we both really like destroy all monsters um but they're they're from a certain cycle this 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 is from something else this is this is this this is just this is just a fun saturday morning entertainment and and there's nothing wrong with something being entertainment and being you know deliberately hilarious but you know it's it, it, it it's it's of its time, and I, I think I think it deserves its place on the list. I'm sure there are a load of Kaiju fans out there saying he chose what, <laughs> but, uh, but but we don't care.
0: <laughs> oh, I, I, it, no, I, def- I don't know. I I know how much was a PC people. But they're gonna. I keep hearing people saying that uh, <laughs> that Godzilla vs. Biollante is their favorite movie, and I'm thinking really. <laughs> Um, yeah I mean this, this comes obviously from that era of Godzilla movies where it is just about monster size smackdowns and I think this is a film which more than delivers on it and these are the films which when you have like uh, MST3K doing Godzilla movies these are the era from the era that they choose and like Destroyer Monsters um, and like Godzilla vs Megalon which people keep trying to vote in every year when we do the Kaiju Christmas vote I don't know what's up, you sadistic people, but uh, yeah, it's—I say—it's just more about Godzilla fighting the monster of the week and teaming up with his monster buddies to destroy Tokyo in a very questionable um, approach to saving the world. He always seems to do more damage than he um, than he does. He's a giant alone. dinosaur.
2: What do you expect? <laughs>
0: Um, it's funny when there's a meme going around where it's like, "Oh, sound of thunder! knowing no luck. There must be Godzilla coming." And I keep feel be threatening to like put like the most nerdy answer in to see how much we can bum people out. And going, "Oh, well, if it's this era Godzilla, then it would be, clearly be fine because it's really Darwinian a battle resources of the, of the nuclear so. rate, yeah. Um. <coughs> yes, if it was. <laughs> <laughs> if it was a real then it's uh, because of our punishment for nuclear weapons. <laughs> um, okay, t- t- two, again we're tapping up the Stuart Ghibli catalogue, who have once again done wonders for this list. Um, but this is a, a top-tier Ghibli title, and that's Kiki's Delivery Service, probably the most charming anime you can see i've seen people who just watch like ultra violence and heroic gunplay movies who absolutely adore this movie and this is also one of those anime where i would recommend you check out the dub rather than the sub um this is a film sees kiki who's a teenage witch in training uh, who decides that she's got to leave home for a year so she can prove she can live on her own and sets up uh, her own delivery service in the seaside turn of Kuriko, along with her talking cat Gigi. Um, again, if you watch the dub version the talking cat is a lot more sarcastic and I think adds a lot more comedy to it. He's kind of a little more straight laced in the uh, the sub version. So. But um, I really like this one. It's Again, it's tapping into Murakami's favourite things of flying and this certainly more than delivers its it's just a really charming anime. It's not full of like high peril and devious characters. It's just you know, just a charming little anime about a witch who runs a delivery service. And what more do you need? And it's the Kirsten third of three um, films. You've voices from uh, my Kiki list. as well. So yeah,
1: it's um it's probably Is my it? third favorite um Ghibli movie. So yeah, it would it, it it was on the list. Um, everything you said times ten. It's 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 charming in a in a little I don't know ninety minute box I don't know if it's ninety minutes it feels feels like it should be what I would say is avoid the live action remake because (laughs) because and and unfortunately yes you've said before that um, it's not particularly good you'd be better off spending the time with the animated version Um, which which is which is always a bit of a disappointment to me but yeah love lovely story lovely animation. Um, and just, just the epitome of charming, I think.
0: And that brings us to number one, and this is a film which I was really. Every time I think of what the film we obviously chose for our episode fifty, which was Seven Samurai, I just instantly think of this film, and that's Takashi Miike's Thirteen Assassins. Uh, the first film really after is outlaw period really so when we talk about the outlaw period we really talk about ending around the likes of Ishe the Killer and Imprint and um, his addition to the Free Extremes trilogy and 13 Assassins really showcased him as being a mainstream player no longer just limited to doing video on demand sort of titles here he just showed that he can really do a A real sort of epic movie and this is certainly what we see here is a group of samurai uh, team up to take out a a lord and really this is just seven samurai times two um, as we see this colourful group of samurai who engage in an absolutely bloody battle at the end and it's full of many sort of like nods to um, Kurosawa's works but at the same time very decidedly Miike and here he just really shows the absolute eye for period drama. I didn't see um, the summary movie. you followed this up with Harry um, Harry Carey, uh, another remake. But um, *Thirteen Assassins* is Harry Curie. Um But Fett and Assassins* is always one of those movies. It's like when we talk about Mikk, it's one I always recommend people check out because it's just such a absolute stunning movie, and you wouldn't think that the guy who did audition would go on and make 13 Assassins. The films are just so different from each other. But then again, every film EK makes is so different from the last film he made. So you're never quite sure what to get. And I think 13 Assassins just raised him above what I think a lot of critics had expected from him. He was no longer just the extreme cinema guy. He was now just like a, a director who really... It's, uh, capable of bringing some real beauty to the screen and I think yeah I, I, just I have 11. to agree with you there's it, so it, many levels it's the
1: film I always think of that is the film where he was suddenly showed he was able to step up I mean there's plenty of films before 2010 of Mick Ace, which I love and there's plenty of films after that I detest <coughs> but there is a there is a there is a quality here there's a sense that he's yeah. gone from being an agent provocateur, the king of indeed, the festival circuit darling to somebody who could make a, who could be in, who could be trusted with a lot of money or at least in Japanese cinema terms to make the summer blockbuster. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that's all he does all the time, but if, if you look at the films he made after this, um, you know, uh, Harry Kiri, lesson, of the evil shield of straw, um, and then things like, as the gods will, you know, he he gets given a big budget and and tends to pull it off. He still makes the other weird stuff as well. You know, he still makes lions standing in the wind. And you think what, Mike, What? But um, yeah. I mean, obviously this isn't a remake of a Kurosawa film, but it's definitely got a Kurosawa jibe to it. Um, and uh, yeah, in, in a, an interesting choice, but I absolutely understand why you've picked it. Because you know it's it's one of our main guys. Obviously, we we talk a lot about him and Sono, and I think it's a pivotal film, and yep. a and and a film which you know eschews some of the more random stuff. I mean, there's still a forty-five minute fight scene in there, so you, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's still, it's still got it's it's still a little bit difficult to watch. <laughs> but um, yeah, just just think he made this the same year as he made Zebra Man Two. That's our guy. <laughs>
0: Zebra is isn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us uh, to the end of my twenty-five uh, films for for this uh, top fifty. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, Stephen's going to let us introduce us to the films which made his list as we uh, complete our top fifty with his top with his twenty-five picks. Stay tuned.
2: On the Simplistic Reviews podcast, we talk movies, we talk TV, we talk. Hello, Julie. What the heck are you doing? Trying to make our spot sound more exciting by adding explosions. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could have got the point across with sound effects, not the real thing. Come on, come on. Download the show on iTunes or simplisticreviews.blogspot.com.
0: I'm sure your insurance company will cover that. No, they won't. No, they probably won't. And we're back. Uh, obviously, in the first half of our show, we covered my top 25 picks uh, for this list, and uh, in a moment, we're going to be hearing from Stephen, but uh, let's just go back over the 25 we just had. And uh, we cover that. No, I'm only joking. Um <laughs> <laughs> I've had to listen to shows where they've like covered like the first twenty five and they're just like, Yeah, let's go back and <laughs> go back and look at that again. It's, it's like
1: It's like one of those um like one of those T V talking head shows, isn't it? You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's worse when they like um they just say what you've just seen happen on the screen. <laughs> it's, it's like um that history of film. I knew uh, you were gonna bring up Mark Cabin Cousins. I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. Yeah, his ability to describe what's happening on the screen, that's... You're really you're really not going to like his women on film one, then. <laughs> I've not, not checked it out yet. Um, I'm guessing it's more the same, but I know David Brooke likes him, and I think you like him yeah. as well,
1: so... Well, he, he's kind of important to me in, in, in the movie drone sense. Now, women on film, I've only watched the first two hours of it,
0: um, in the movie drone sense, Alex Cox is important in the movie yeah, drone they, sense. They, they,
1: they both are, um, but but yeah, the the, the <laughs> yeah, it's it's everything that you don't like about it, <laughs> but it's oh but it's really good as well. Um, but I can absolutely understand why you don't like it because, uh, um. In 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 this one, certainly in the first few episodes, Tilda Swinton is narrating. So at least you're not, it's not his voice, but it is oh, clearly, but it is clearly his voice. It's his words, yeah, because yeah. it's literally describing what you're seeing, um, but with with a reason. It, it's done like um, huh, he, he tries to he tries to do it like a bit like a film course. So yeah. he picks some so so whilst it's all the films are by female filmmakers. That is, it's not a film about female filmmakers, it's a film, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 14 hour documentary about film, using films by female filmmakers as the example. Um, but fourteen hours of anything is too much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at the BFO plan; and it was like six, six or eight parts, and I was like, "Oh, that's not too bad." I wasn't expecting those parts to be like two hours long. No, he's, um, having,
1: he's been having some problems getting it shown. So, it's like, the BBC only want, or was Channel Four, BBC, whoever, it, um, only want to show like six or seven hours of it. Um, and I can, I can see why, because it's, it's um, absolutely obsessed about its, its structure. Okay. And, and it's quite wearing but you know it, it, it's it's some good stuff in there anyway that's not why we're here <laughs> edit now, that out right
0: <laughs> well, as i said i wasn't even going to include that bit so this is just so completely random this is so <laughs> but um yes obviously steven if you're t- 25 for I me mean, obviously for my own 25 there were some edits that were made you know prior to as going live with that list and I think for yourself you were saying was it was a similar situation you've been making changes right up until the to the moment dot and there uh, we're it, coming to record this so
1: yeah um I, I don't want to spoil the magic of how podcasts are put together but yes whilst, whilst wait you know this this might not be the same as before the break <laughs> but um yeah I I I, I it's it's this is more difficult, because when you're picking your top 25, um, the, the, the order kind of matters. When you're doing like 50 to 25, uh, or 26 I suppose it is, the, the order seems less important, and I was more interested in getting the films I wanted in there, and, yeah. I'm, and I maybe felt a little more relaxed about what I could include. And maybe set myself some other little subtle rules that I wanted, some different types of film that maybe I'd picked before from different countries. Um, I I excused myself from last time I set myself a rule about only one film from any one director. I don't think I've broken that too much again. But yes, then then I'm happy with my 25 or maybe 27, but you know, (laughs) there are a couple flipping in and out. But then it was, oh yeah, but... How, how should I approach them? You know, if, if we're going to have a countdown. So yeah, I've I've been I've been messing with the order a little bit, but but to be honest with you, uh, other than maybe the top two or three, the rest, um, depending on how I felt on any day, could could shuffle around.
0: Okay. Um, that's exciting. So where do you kick your list off then for this uh, rundown?
1: Okay, right. So my first film is actually a bit of a cheat. <laughs> is, it, oh, it's uh, a good start. It's, um, it's not a Asian film in the sense it's not made by Asian filmmakers. Um, it's not even set in, a, in in an Asian country, but it is absolutely talking about the Asian experience. Um, it's a documentary film called Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, um, by the documentary maker Steve James, who I think did Hoop Dreams. Um, so you know he's a he's a he's a well-known documentarian. I reviewed this some time ago for for Eastern Kicks and. It's it stayed with me, which I think is one of those things. You know, one of those elements that we were trying to um, include on things on this list. Not necessarily the best films in the world, but ones that have stayed with us. Um, It's about a basically a a, the Abacus Federal Savings Bank, which is basically a sort of mom and pop community bank based in um, Chinatown in New York, and during the Sort of the, the financial meltdown in in Western in the Western world um, in or around two thousand three two thousand and four. This bank, for some reason, went on a run, and the film is intercut with things like from It's a Wonderful Life, so you know the, the very the ultimate mom and pop bank run story. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, That's and... not many of those.
0: <laughs> <that>? <laughs>
1: but um, basically, they got done they got um people got imprisoned people got fined and what this um what this film sort of points out is how come these guys from this little tiny bank in in chinatown got absolutely pulverized by the the new york county district um, attorney um whereas those big those big banks um who were doing terrible things with subprime loans and things like that didn't and is this really some kind of um classic american anti-asian racism yeah really really fascinating documentary and it just stuck with me because because american history and modern american history fascinates me especially around the race relations and things like that and it's just it's just a really good and really interesting um film so that's my that's my number 25 that's that's my first cheat there's another one coming along at number 24 i have a south korean film um called sunny um, there are two South Korean films called Sunny. This is the 2011 one. It's um, it's a comedy drama um, by uh, Kang Hyung Chol. Um, basically, it tells the story of a group of women over two time frames. Um, we have a modern day story where um, a woman basically comes across an old friend who's dying of cancer, and sort of challenge, and the guy, the, the woman dying of cancer, sort of challenges the first friend to to bring the old gang back together again this is then into cut with a story of them back in the past in the 1980s now we've spoken about 1980s south korean history before many times so it sort of has that um that kind of um runnings theme about what it was like in south korea in the 80s you know and under uh, basically military junta really um along with with the more modern day story and how south korea's changed um it's it's wonderfully south korean in the sense that it manages to balance comedy and music alongside some really quite hard hitting and horrible dramatic stuff as well um most 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 korean films that we talk about uh, take, take a right turn somewhere this this one sort of flips flips back and back and forth the um the uh the, the right mm. turn <laughs> but uh, it's um it's got um one of my favorite actress yun kyung who already has appeared um as number 50 in our in our first first run as, as miss granny um she's just one of my favorite actresses of all time um yeah but it's, it's just a huge amount of fun but it's also got this sort of historical bent to it as well so that's that's my number 24 at number 23 I'm guessing you haven't seen any No, as I said, I've not seen any of these, so I'm, said, any of these yet, so. <laughs> I'm 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 wondering if you're going to be able to join in this half of the show Elwood but we shall see. Um, um yeah sorry next next one is a film that I have spoken about before um in our horror draft episode when we had um, Young Zoe join us um it's Qui Dam, which is a 1965 sort of collection anthology of films by masaki kobayashi um basically based on a whole bunch of old um japanese folk tales it tells sort of four separate unrelated stories um the black hair um which is uh, which is basically sort of the prototype for um stories like ring that we and and um dead friend that we films that we've spoken about um the fantastic woman of the snow um the hoichi the earless and, and a little short one called in a cup of tea um it's an astonishing piece of work it's very long <laughs> it's not necessarily perfect all the way through i mean the black hair is fairly throwawayable. a ball in a cup of tea is, is is barely a story but um woman of the snow and hoichi the earless are, are fantastic and visuals that when you see them you'll have recognized um from various other other places um very um influential movie one of those movies a bit like some of we t- talked about before that nearly broke a studio it's, it's, um, it was nearly broke toho um it's three hours long um and you know me i'm a 90 minute film guy but <laughs> i am a sucker for these kind of um uh, what are they called slow um, burns yeah not just slow burns but when you've got multiple films multiple oh, an stories of a film uh, yeah an anthology but I think it, there's a more there's a more technical okay. term for it um, I I love things like Phobia and stuff like that the, the Thai films which a um, uh, 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 poor Menteau movie that's what they're called yeah uh, you know usually with a with a a narrative joining them together. This one doesn't have that. So I don't know, I don't know if you've seen quite yeah, I mean I've seen quite, um, I
0: remember it sort of like back in in the day. I mean this is one that you sort of filed alongside the Kurasawas and and the Muslim of Highbrow mm. um, sort of things, but I remember it just having that really distinctive cover of the guy with obviously the uh, writing all over his face. Yeah, and, which the uh, yep. yeah, it's certainly one of those films that's really come back into vogue, I would say the last couple of years, it's uh, really sort of been one that's been appearing on uh, various people's lists, and Mark Modes has put it in his sort of top horror list, and uh, certainly Eureka have uh, put it out as part of their Master of Horror, Master of Cinema series. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting that this is one that has um, sort of had that revival sort of uh, treatment all of a sudden, because it's I said, it is more of a traditional sort of uh, horror, sort of ghost story, sort of the category um, of film. It's not th- what we would expect, I think, from like a lot of the Asian horror. And I think that's where it was sort of sneaking across. Really, it came. Yeah. So when we had like the big J horror boom, this got re-dug up again. I remember, and um, I think people were just sort mm-hmm. of like excited because it, it was more Asian horror rather than just anything that was sort of matching what was out at the time. So, but um.
1: No, it's 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 very different to to sort yeah. of that that J horror boom. Although definitely the story of the black hair, it, you can definitely draw a line from that to Ring. Um, it it, it there are there are yeah. links there, but you know it it's a sixties film. But, but
0: you know, by the same effect, I mean anything that gets a film sort of noticed, really. I mean it may not be in the same vein, but if it's getting people talking about the the film again, I think it can only be a sort of good thing, really. So you know, sometimes it's good to. Go looking for one thing and to uh, find something completely different, and you know, find yourself on a whole new path, which is always nice. So, indeed.
1: And on that 1960s Japan, Jap- Japan, <laughs> Japanese horror films, um, I've also got an next of my next one, um, which is uh, Onibaba, um, or Demon Hag, um, which is a kind of a uh, uh, I think I think it's quite well known these days but uh, but it certainly wasn't when I when I first saw it um basically sort of set back probably in the Edo period or something like that um two women uh, mother and daughter live alone and um they basically kill soldiers who stumble by and steal their possessions um rather similar to um uh, Sam the story in the in the film Samurai which I talked about a few weeks ago but yes they they uh, a man comes gets between the women it's all very full of sexual tension um but the thing about this film is it's visuals it's one of the most glorious black and white films in the world that's ever been put together it's sweaty and it's sexual without being um obvious and the most important thing is these reeds that they're the hut that where they live is in this area with, with these reeds which are like twice the size of people and the wind blows and it's like this there's like a spirit out there in the fields wishing the um wishing these things about and it's like alive and if M Night Shyamalan hadn't seen this film when he made what's the film with Mel Gibson Oh um and science. Whacking Felix. Yeah, it, things he's done in that film with with the corn, he's absolutely ripping off that Oni Um <laughs> It's 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 not the it's not the it's not the scariest film, but it's got this, this 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 atmosphere and the photography and the and and the natural world and the sexual world coming together. It's it's an astonishing piece of work.
0: Yeah, another real art house uh, piece of cinema. I mean, the fact that it's obviously got the I think I wouldn't say the Kenji mask. Uh, that the samurai wears, in which they decide to steal mm. with him, and there's a real—I don't know—it was like a sort of like more of a sort of like a hammer, or more like a Twilight Zone sort of twist in regards to the curse this mask carries. But it's—I um, just remember that mask being incredibly striking, and there's a number of scenes that have been that you sort of associate with, because I was obviously familiar with. That style of mask, I mean, it's very popular in sort of Japanese tattooing, mm. Japanese iconography. So, just seeing that on the cover, it's sort of like, oh, I want to, I want to check this out. Um, so that's what sort of drew me in, but yeah, I, I mean, I get what you're saying. It's a, uh, it's another sort of art house horror one, but I think this one's a little more accessible, uh, than your previous previous choice. And again, it's one that's, uh, mm. also come back into vogue. I think maybe the, this is what we're on a kick off now. Just art house, uh, Asian horror is going to be the new, the new boom.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're going to keep throwing art house at me this entire list. So it's all right. Okay, my next choice is not art okay. house. Um, Anything but, and you've definitely seen it. Um, I'm obviously a gigantic fan of Stephen Chow. Um, I've podcasted about him elsewhere. I've written articles about him, blah, blah, blah. I picked King of Comedy, yes. I think. In, in our in our first section and I wanted to pick another one. I could have picked thirteen of his films, I've got to be honest with you. But what I thought was if I picked the um if I if I use the this was important to me as a as a criteria, I had to pick Shaolin Soccer. Oh, really? And I picked Shaolin Soccer because basically it was the first Stephen Chow film that I ever saw. And I I absolutely remember back in Early two thousands, when the internet was was still fairly uh, inaccessible to 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 most people, but you know we used we used it at work, and people would email around what I can only remember as um, QuickTime or .dot files or something like that, <laughs> um, clips of this film in very low resolution um, of these crazy football things that were going on um which was one of the things that brought me back into 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 Asian cinema to be honest with you that made me go and hunt down this film maybe import it at the time from Hong Kong um not knowing about all the crap that was going on with it getting a a western release and you know I suspect we'll have to talk about Weinstein on on this one as well but um it's the film which basically exposed me to Stephen Chow, made me fall in love with his films and his style, um, and and sent me down a path of looking at films which were basically, you know, just everyday blockbusters. This this is a this is this is a Hong Kong film for the Hong Kong masses. Um, sure, sure, it, it exploded elsewhere, but this wasn't. Um, you know, maybe previously I'd looked at all the classics, the Kurosaws and things like that, and, th- and this this gave me a route into the cinema of the of the ordinary. Um, it's a far from ordinary film. It's absolutely hilarious. Um, I know that this was followed up by Kung Fu Hustle, which I suspect more people love because it's ribbing, you know, ribbing on a whole whole bunch of um, uh, more known sort of cinema tropes but I'm a big football man and I love Shaolin Soccer
0: yeah I mean this is a real Art uh, House comedy piece I <laughs> 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 no said that with a straight face uh, yeah I remember Shaolin Soccer came out and it was weird as well because Shaolin Soccer came out and they were promoting it as like a big mainstream release to western audiences you had like um, you had like um Kids magazines and stuff like giving away tickets to see Shaolin and so- soccer. I mean, this is how accessible a film it was. And I think a lot of people thought that Stephen Chow would like come over here, would be like this big sort of the next sort of big breakout star. But really, we only had um, Kung Fu Hustle, and then that was it. I mean, we didn't really get the Mermaid over here. But like, I think he had a bad distribution in the states, but certainly in the UK, it didn't get any sort of distribution at all. And then he sort of uh, fell under the radar, and has just obviously been making films over and obviously in his native Hong Kong, but they've not had the distribution, really.
1: Well, kind kind of. So after Kung Fu Hustle, he made CJ7, which was less comedy, less slapstick, less Stephen Chow. Um, it was basically a kid's film with a cute little alien thing in it. And then, then he did kind of disappear and, and started doing things in the background, um, co-directed a couple of movies. Um, but what the thing about... Oh, Spoilers might be talking about the mermaid Mm. later,
2: but, um,
1: (laughs) um, he, he started working in, in the mainland. He's, he's basically, he's basically part of the, um, you know, he's, he's got, he's got a place on the um, mainland China arts council. You know, he's, he's not really a Hong Kong person in that sense anymore. Um, which is one of the reasons he's disliked by quite a few people in Hong Kong, um, but yeah, he 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 just sort of tailed off. Sort of Shaolin Soccer and um, and Kung Fu Hustle were his his last big hurrah in that in that period of 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 him making making either starring in or, or making lots of films. Um, and as you say, um, when we did King of Cookery, yeah. God of Cookery, um, for one of our early episodes, I mean, the idea was he was going to come over and remake God of Cookery in the UK, um, not in the UK, in the USA. Um, it didn't happen. There are all sorts of uh, conspiracy theories as to why, like maybe his um, his links to the triads may have not allowed him to come into the United States, but I, I, I don't know. I don't think that ever stopped half the other people coming across uh, from that industry. But yeah, all, all a bit conspiratorial. But yeah, it's just I don't know. I, I I know why this film might not appeal and to many now and may be probably considered a. a one of his more fluffier affairs but it was just important to me because it because it pulled me back in again
0: yeah i think certainly it's a it's a film which just appeal it works on so many levels and i know certainly the initial sort of football sequence where it descends into this world war Two, trench crawl is just still one of the funniest things i've seen um, and when it came to, obviously, like, like Kung Fu Kung Fu Hustle, I think the franticness of the comedy, like when you have the weird chase sequences and the landlady screaming and mm. stuff, I think that's why it didn't sort of jar me the first time and I had to watch it again to really sort of appreciate it, where Shadow Soccer certainly was a really accessible sort of introduction to Stephen Chow and uh, I think made a lot of people wonder why we hadn't sort of picked him up before, so absolutely
1: i mean the the, the cgi is a bit naff now look 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 great in a in a quick time movie back in 2002 or whenever it was (laughs) um on my blu-ray looks a bit naff these days but that maybe that's a bit of the charm right next is my second uh my second of three cheats um it's a film from last year it's um And yeah, you're going to say art house again, but it's, uh, it's Lulu Wang's The Farewell, um, which although is an American movie is absolutely set in China and it's absolutely got a Chinese cast and it's, apart from, apart from its big star and it's absolutely a story about being Chinese um, mixed with the Asian American experience it stars Awkwafina, who's like one of the big big uh, current stars yep. of the day in a, and and she's just in a pretty non comedy role um she basically had to learn um because she's although she is half chinese i think she probably identifies more with her half korean side so she basically had to learn mandarin for this um the story of a young woman young american woman who's basically her, her favorite grandparent is it lives in china she she's um she's going to die She's been um, diagnosed with cancer and she goes across with her family to basically ease this woman this this grandmother's last days um without letting her know she's got cancer and she's going to die um initially they don't want Awkwafina's character to go because she said they say she'll let on and apparently this is a thing apparently you don't tell people that they're going to die i don't know how true that is um but it's certainly an autobiographical story on behalf of the actress Louie wang so this might be something they do in their family rather than something they do in general but it's a wonderful heartwarming story elements of comedy in there um but it's 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 about the asian american experience and how the culture of the asian americans is different to those of the more traditional chinese family um so there's a bit a little bit of a culture clash there but it's it's utterly charming and it was my favorite film of last year so i'm saying as it's got a an asian director and takes part in asia and is basically 90 percent in mandarin I'm I'm, I'm allowing it. I hope you are. Oh, definitely. So, I
0: mean, obviously, I used Ang Lee's Lost Caution for my own. Again, that was a film shot in uh, Taiwanese, I believe it it was. But again, it's an Asian cast Mm. with an Asian director and and predominantly shot in the native (laughs) uh, tongue. I mean, certainly, when we look at uh, the awards it was up uh, for, because at the Golden Globes, they was uh, nominated in the category of foreign film so um, but no Awkwafina I mean can certainly do no wrong for myself I love Okafina. Um, I think f- since I first stumbled across in the documentary Bad Rap about um, Asian American mm. rappers which is again a really good uh, documentary and certainly an eye-opening insight into her style of rap um i've been kind of obsessed with it, and it's been funny the fact that she did that documentary and then she went on to obviously do like bad neighbors 2 um oceans 8 and obviously the farewell being sort of like her first big uh sort of role because up until this point she's been playing sort of like comedic sidekick roles and doing things like
1: yeah like in crazy yeah rotations. and i mean i mean she's she... She's funny in that, but but you know it, it, it's a comedy role, and this this th- there is mm. comedy in this film, but it's not from her.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, she's proven herself as being like this human chameleon as an actress, so it's kind of been it was kind of interesting to see her do a more straight and more dramatic sort of role, and I think she was absolutely phenomenal in this. I think it's a film which I wish had got better distribution. I mean, it's only just now sort of shuffled onto um, Amazon Prime over here in the UK, so. It's one worth well, worth uh, checking out, definitely. So,
1: yeah, and 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 it's the one film on this list. One, uh, yeah, one film on this list that I probably would have shoved up into my top twenty-five. I, I love it. I love it that much, and it was absolutely snubbed at the Oscars. And um, although you know, represent Parasite, I, I wish this film had had gotten some recognition in in some way, shape, or form. But it did well at the Golden Globe, So, hey, right. The next film, <laughs> I can guarantee you, you've never seen. I can guarantee you will have a hard, hard time finding it. But it is a film I adore. Um, it's called Tolong Awek Aku Pontianak. It's a Malaysian film and that roughly translates to help. My girlfriend is a vampire. And it's basically a Malaysian comedy stupid comedy <laughs> mm-hmm. about a guy called bob who um he's a bit of a loser and um he has these dreams about his girlfriend being a vampire and and then when he goes to propose to her she says nope i'm i'm, I'm actually leaving you for another guy his job's not going very well all his i all the ideas that he has um his boss takes credit for and of course he's boss is also the son of the owner of the firm um and basically oh yeah and he's living in a in a house which he can't afford because he was trying to impress his girlfriend and he basically downsizes to a new place with his with his mate and it turns out his new place is populated by both immigrants and ghosts and then there's these two vampires who live next door and 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 it's just it's just a riotous thing um i used the word uh Pontianak, which is sort of a uh, it's, it's a very commonly used uh supernatural creature in in i'd say in islamic country horror films so you'll you'll get come across it a lot in indonesian films as well as malaysian films um it kind of translates to vampire but because this is set in malaysia and malaysia is a kind of very melting potty kind of country um these Pontianaks aren't just like the traditional one they're actually a bit like western vampire as well and they have an aversion to garlic and it's just this it's just this glorious it's not it's not a mess of a film it's just a, it's just another comedy film, i guess it's like shaolin soccer in that sense and it's just a film that's always stuck with me and i did i I used, I used to do some writing with um when i when i used to write my blog um i used to do a sort of a semi-annual event with uh with another lover of cult cinema um who sadly no longer writes anymore, but she, she also loved this this film as well, and I think we both kind of bonded over that. So it's, it's kind of an important film to me, but it's the most obscure thing on this list, and um, good luck even finding it on Letterboxd, mate. <laughs> <laughs> right. Next up, my final... I, I, yeah, I, I think The Farewell was probably less of a cheat. This, this one we, we could um, discuss one way or t'other, but it's The Act of Killing. Um, Another documentary um, by American documentarian based out of um, Denmark, I believe, Um, but it's very much an Indonesian film Um, and and multiple award winning blah, blah, blah. Um, Basically, back in the 60s, there was a mid 60s, um, there was right wing government in Indonesia. And they violently worked against what they saw to be a communist revolution on the way um, and without getting too political, the british and the um, and the Americans also got involved in this, but that's not what this film is about it basically basically it goes and interviews one of the the people who basically killed... He he was basically a gangster. And he was given power by the government to basically kill and torture and do terrible things to hundreds, maybe thousands of suspected communists or, or enemies of the government. And the film basically interviews him and, and his henchmen who are utterly unrepentant about what they did. Um, Seem to have no sense of remorse over what they've done and not only talk about it openly but the filmmaker allows them to basically create films and all the recreate the killings in the styles of their favorite films and whether it's a gangster film or, or or a musical it's it's quite astonishing piece of cinema um uh, the director actually followed it up with uh, a slightly different one, like Look of Silence, a few years yeah. later. But An Act of Killing is is one of the greatest documentaries of all time, Asian or otherwise. It's in Indonesia, and it is a mind-blowing experience. I, I don't know if you've seen it, Elwood.
0: Yeah, I've seen uh, The Act of Killing. I remember this as well. those documentaries that had a lot of hype um, around it when it came out. Um Look of Silence also had a fair amount of uh, hype when it came out, but I think there was less of a connection made between the two films and, mm. which I think was much to its sort of detriment, and uh, the fact that the cover of the look of Silence had a guy having an eye exam which kind of threw people off as to what the film was about uh, but no, I mean the act of killing is a film I've only seen once, so I can't remember the ins and outs of it uh, particularly well, but I certainly remember it being um, a very unique take on the material, I mean We've seen a similar um attempt to sort of this style with um casting uh was it Jambonet, I want to say. Um the uh the little beauty queen who was um murdered, who was um dead on Spiss. Oh Joe Bennett, birds, but... Joe Bennett. Joe yes. Bennett, whatever, yes. Um we had had that and we had Louis Fru's um Scientology documentary as well, which Took a a similar sort of stance of uh, this idea of casting a film about Scientology and it, and it, having actors yeah. reenact sort of sequences. So, it's um, I think it certainly took a very unique approach and one that we've seen variations of since. Um, so, it's at least got the sort of credit for for attempting to do something unique first, but. It's hard to say whether it sort of trivialised it to have these people who are responsible for these horrific acts like come along and doing like you know musicals and westerns and sort of trivialising the acts that they carried out. I mean, especially as many of them don't show exactly huge amounts of remorse for them. I think only one um, one of the uh, the the people sort of like really sort of breaks down, which I think. But only only is, when is...
1: only when he's forced to play a victim. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah it's one of the big criticisms of the film is if i remember rightly is that it doesn't really give a lot of context about what is going on so it doesn't really talk it doesn't really explain what the world was like in 1965 it doesn't really talk about what indonesian society's view is to this the, i mean it is still viewed as a good thing what happened yeah at least the communists didn't take over you know um and, and I think the film concentrates, a, for some people's liking, a bit much on on the story of this guy, and there is a danger that you're you're kind of by giving him that platform, your your um is it Anwar or something his name, yeah, yeah, you 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 you're you're kind of glamorising him and by giving him a, a podium to talk on. Um, but I just think it's just a really really interesting and fascinating and you know what i'm like about history <laughs> and things like that so this is always going to be a film that appeals to me and and i i, I wavered whether i was going to be allowed it or not and um and then i decided it's absolutely again about an nation experience um so I, i'm allowing it
0: <laughs> i think it's certainly a film if you've got the historical sort of context which i think the film could have done with giving the those was not up to speed on sort of historical events of of giving a little more of a background. I think it would have been a little, perhaps a little more effective. Mm. Um, whereas this one sort of relies on you having more of an idea. I think there's a, there's a Nick Broomfield uh, documentary as well, which I think that um, about the apartheid in South Africa. Mm. Uh, we followed um, uh, tar- the uh Tablouch,
1: ter- Tab, ter- Tabart, ter- dar- ter- whatever his name is. Uh, Louis Theroux followed one, did exactly the same documentary, didn't he? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Um,
0: Again, it would sort of help to, like, you know, you know, for those who are not brought up in the time of, like, the South African apartheid, it's like, what's apartheid? <laughs> uh, why is this person so important? I mean, yes, I mean, obviously, with the Broomfield documentary, I mean, he's dealing with a, a subject who's interesting enough even to, someone perhaps not up to speed of who this person is, to just follow him around as a documentary subject, but... um, both films I think just could have benefited from a little more historical context or you taking the time to do the background research before you go into them Um, I think that's the best way to sort of appreciate them uh, for what they offer.
1: Next film, it's another Indonesian film funnily enough Um, (laughs) another film I think I, yes, I reviewed for EasternKicks.com, which I think has has snuck out into the into the mainstream, certainly on the streaming services. Um, it's uh, Muli Suya's *Marlena the Murderer in Four Acts*, which, if I describe it as a feminist Western, based in an unusual part of Indonesia with elements of tarantino in it i think that'll pretty much cover it <laughs> um, it's uh yeah it's a, it's a story told in four acts of a woman called Marlena, who ends up killing um the sort of leader of a gang who basically has done some terrible things to her and she decapitates him um and 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 it's her story of, of kind of going back to the main town and admitting to what she's done whilst other people are um suggesting and maybe she's done the right thing um it's 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 an amazing film um it's quite often when you see films set in indonesia it'll be set in jakarta so it'll be in the in the busy city and the bright lights of of a modern um Asian city, or or set in the jungle areas, but obviously Indonesia is a massive country with millions of islands. And this basically, this this looks, this is set on a on a part of um, Indonesia that's basically arid desert, and looks like the American West. And so the film basically plays on the sort of the whole spaghetti western idea, but it's a much more I, I definitely use the phrase tarantino on purpose because of the language and because of the things that are going on that's a much more modernist view of it um and yeah it's 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 a really stunning film um yes it's art house elwood <laughs> and, <laughs> but you can
0: watch what you want your your are less <laughs>
1: but um really 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 do recommend it and um, i'm pretty certain it's on um if it's not on Amazon it's on Netflix or something it's, it's on something that's available but uh, yeah it was one of the, a film that really stuck with me and um, interestingly for the other place I write at, the Neon the League the Feminist website um, this was a film I was going to talk about and Harris who also writes for Eastern Kicks got in first so it obviously affected him as well um, yeah really 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 love it but I know you haven't seen it so let's move on to the next one now the next film you have seen i know you've seen <laughs> okay and you're going to be shocked when i say it's a john woo film because right. i'm not a john woo guy <laughs> but i adore red cliff okay um, again maybe it's the historian in me um i even like the full two parts of it. I was about uh, to
0: say which version are you going with? Are you going with like the Western theatrical release or are you going with like the full, full two four the hour, full hour epic?
1: Full four hours but split into two films. Um, yeah. basically it's the story of the Battle of Red Cliffs which happened between the end of the Han Dynasty and before the sort of the famous Three Kingdoms period in Imperial China. It's got little Tony Long in it, it's got um my, one of my favorite um Hong Kong actors it's got Takeshi Kaneshiro in it who's one of my favorite Taiwanese actors don't be fooled by his Japanese name people um it's it's a war film but it's got loads of stuff about tactics it's got it's 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 gloriously epic it's unlike anything else John Woo's done really um yeah, John Woo is is obviously famous for the the heroic bloodshed and and the um and the slow-mos and the and the doves and uh, although he has he's dipped his toe into other things this is this is a step up fantastic cast fantastic visualization and and implementation um usually these kind of films bore me but because of of Woo's, you know undoubted talent in, in, with with sort of dynamism behind the camera it makes it incredibly entertaining but you know there are also bits of this which are just people talking about tactics so I love Red Cliff and uh, I even saw it at the cinema and that was a long day <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, John Red Redcliffe, I mean, this was obviously his first film when he returned back to, uh, back to Hong Kong, really. I mean, he'd obviously been over in the West trying to bring his style of filmmaking across uh, with, you know, mixed results uh, with, you know, wind talkers and paycheck to, you know, seeing it as the last sort of, gasp uh, really after he started well. I mean, he's obviously doing things like heart Target, Broken Arrow, Face Off, and even Mission Impossible 2, which, you know, the naysayers will completely bitch about and say it's the worst one now, but, you know, when it was released, it was exciting, and for myself it's still an exciting movie, so down to them. Uh, but yeah, obviously Redcliffe, he goes back and, you know, he's <laughs> treated like this returning hero, um, and first thing he does is obviously to make this epic... Um, period piece and I mean yeah he's obviously well he's obviously known best for his like heroic bloodshed movies I mean you have to remember he did come up obviously making like kung fu movies and things like The Young Dragons and Hands of Death and uh, Lassarath Chivalry but he'd never done anything on this scale as a period piece so it was really interesting to see what he does and I think it maintains a lot of his flair for action and and, uh, certainly it's a real sort of cast of thousands um epic it feels like even though you can tell obviously there's some CGI trickery in there but um no i really enjoy enjoyed this one i think it's it's great and when you have that divide between the two films it's sort of like that perfect stopping off point to you know go have a toilet break and then come back and uh, enjoy some more action
1: yeah um yeah it, it 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 it's it's a bit of investment but it's a film that's also made for blu-ray <laughs> it comes on the two discs, and um, you can you can certainly have a break. Um, it may, maybe a film we, we might come back to at some point, I suspect. Right, next up, another film which I think is a tragedy that's really hard to find. Another film that I reviewed for Eastern Kicks about five years ago, and I was lucky enough to interview the director, and it is a Cambodian film, which I have to say is probably the only Cambodian film I've ever seen. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> Both Cambodian films that I've seen, um, and if you want to include The Killing Fields, which is a film set in Cambodia, all deal with the same time period in history, i.e. the um, the regime of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. Um, the last reel by um, Kulakar Sotho, who's a sort of female filmmaker, Cambodian female filmmaker, um, basically tells this story of a young woman who in, in in modern day cambodia sort of finding out about the history of maybe what her father was up to during the um, khmer rouge and it's brave enough to suggest that you know maybe he, he he actually saw it as a righteous cause and that he maybe thought he was doing the right thing um but of course you have the modern day woke um younger generation who maybe can't put themselves in the shoes of people from a previous time not to justify what he did but you know it's it's this element of um of, of just being able to empathize with with the previous generation um however what elevates this is that it uses all kinds of other things um including basically before the the, the Pol Pot's regime, Cambodia had what is known as its sort of golden age of cinema. Um, if you think back to again to one of our pre uh, one of our early episodes on um, the Thai film Tears of the Black Tiger, which was trying to el- emulate that um, uh, th- that that look and feel of, of Thai cinema from the from the sort of the forties and fifties, it, it seems that Cambodian cinema was equally as um, popular and it was a thing for the masses and basically 300 of those films were destroyed during the Khmer Rouge as a whole part of Cambodia's both cinematic history but also what those films that the the age that those films were, were about and the previous age so it kind of talks about about that and and you know the last reel in the title is you know the, the, about this young girl trying to record and rediscover the previous history of her country because you know when we think of cambodia we think of the cambodian war and um and 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 there's a lot more to this country than that um and it's also about generations it's yes yeah, it's, a, it's a fantastic film um but probably the second one on this list it'd be nigh on impossible for anyone to find. I've never been able to find a copy of it with a, certainly not with uh not with um English subtitles. But um yeah. Good luck with that everybody. <laughs>
0: What's the name of it again?
1: The Last Real R E E L.
0: That's right, the list that was on.
1: Yep. So, it's on I, um... I'm sure it's on letterbox D. But yes, fantastic film. And, and another one which maybe could have gone in my original 25. But, you know, lack of space. Right, the next film. You can throw at me, Art House, for sure this time. It's from your favourite director, Elwood, Edward Yang. But don't worry, right. it's not The Terrorizers. <laughs>
0: the Terrorizers, what a misleading title that was. <laughs>
1: no, this is A Brighter Summer Day which is another three hour long film where I'm really going off brand when I said best films are 90 minutes um it's another story set in 60s Taiwan during a period of um military dictatorship and civil unrest um i think there's a pattern here (laughs) Hmm. it's obviously something that that appeals to me or 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 film set in in sort of that life during wartime kind of thing um this film is half um half that half sort of a a look at sort of mid-60s um taiwan and, and and the experiences of of the director actually during that time but it's also a little bit um, West Side Story, really, about two gangs that have, go up against each other and someone ends up dying. And then also in the three hours we see, um, very similar to the last film, where the father of one of the characters has um, has maybe been involved with some uh, dodgy political dealings. And uh, we see the effect of that has on on his family and his career. Um it's a sprawling epic um it's it's part of that sort of new 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 taiwanese cinema that edward yang was obviously at the forefront of um it's probably a little more straightforward than the terrorizers i think you'd follow it more easily but it is a long film and a film to be watched i suggest in in parts but um you know as, as you know this is this is a period of cinema that i love which i can't get you to love and i won't be bringing this to the show but uh i'll certainly bring it to my top 50 and our top 100 so uh you're stuck
0: with it now i know that i well i'm mean, just like i know it's suddenly got its fans out there you know like our facebook group and that and these people get really excited when you talk about edward yanks movies and uh well, I might not be one of them, there are certainly people out there who are going to be excited to uh, see him mentioned on your list. So,
1: Yeah, don't worry. There's something else coming up for them soon as well. <laughs> but in the meantime, let me go back. We'll go to Thailand. And Thailand is a is a, is a, is a cinema that I really, really like, or certainly a, a period of it. Um, and We've barely spoken about Thai cinema at all. Um, you obviously picked um, a Chocolate, which is one of my films. Of all time in, in your in your half of the show, yep. and um, obviously I picked uh, "Tis the Black Tiger" for our I want to say our second ever episode, and I think that's pretty much the only time we've spoken about Thai cinema. Um, probably be wrong. Um, one of the classics of the I'll call it the J horror boom, the K horror boom, that sort of the Asian horror boom was um, was one of the films that came from Thailand, which is "Shutter," um, which is. It's, it's basically one of those films about ghosts and modern technology in this case um ghosts appearing in polaroid photographs um so you know we have them on videotapes we have them on computer discs we have them on all sorts you know the the, the, the it was just a thing however shutter is an incredibly well-made film um starring ananda everingham who i will say apparently must have appeared in every thai film i've seen since um since about the year 2000 i've seen a lot and and he, i swear he's in nearly every single one but yeah really sort of fantastic one of those sort of unsettling ghost stories um not full of jump scares too much there's a bit of it but it's it's more about this unsettling feeling Is a ghost exist or they not it gets exist um why are they around you know basically our um our hero and i'm using bunny ears there um has has committed a crime quite early in the film and, it, and he's being haunted by it and this leads us up to one of the most fantastic final scenes in asian horror cinema where where we see through the magic of the uh surveilling camera that he ha- literally has a ghost on his back for the rest of his life it was remade in uh, a couple of years later in america avoid um but yeah really really sort of just 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 a, a classic of the asian ghost story but but nice that it's coming from thailand rather than um rather than japan or hong kong or south korea you must have seen shutter
0: yeah, I mean, I saw Shutter. It was part of the uh, Tartan Asia Extreme label mm. uh, when it had its uh, initial release. So, yeah, I saw that one. And, yeah, it's, as you said, it's a, a fun little ghost story. i went to I'm trying to remember where the eye was. Is the eye tie or something? That... A bit
1: complicated. So, the... um <laughs> <laughs> simple yes and no. No, no. So, the Pang Brothers are... Um... I think they they they're they born and raised in Hong Kong, but they make most of their films in Thailand. Yeah. So you will see most of their crew have Thai names. Um, so we might talk about this in our in our in our recycle episode, and we talk about it. so so it, it's it's always a little bit confusing because even things that like like the the C minus detective is set in Bangkok, even though it's, it's full of um, Hong Kong actors. But uh, yeah, this this is. Yeah, it, yeah, Thailand sort of is always nice um, because it's got that mix of urban, the rich urbanness alongside jungles and sweaty sweatiness. It, it always is a good location for a for a nation horror film.
0: Definitely, it was a, a very good choice. I think it's one that's kind of fallen off the uh, sort of radar of a lot of people. I like a lot of those second um, wave films of that, mm. of the bigger uh, sort of revival booms. so having that and, you know, A Bit of Sweet Life, it's sort of due, that sort of revival um, but no, Shudder's Shutter, a very good um, Asian horror definitely.
1: Yeah, I, I think it was done a disservice because of the Joshua Jackson remake um, which was a but, you know, it was, it was a flop and a farce and a nonsense. Um, I think Thai cinema, I, know, I think we've, we've been guilty of ignoring it a bit. Um, that used to be the thing I was most doing at Eastern Kicks, was sort of in, indie Thai cinema. So uh, I, I must resolve to bring more to our attention. Right. Now. <sighs> this is the film I struggled with the most. I'm not sure if you've seen it or not. Um, it is. And it's another one of my... Um, Taiwanese new wave directors although it's a much more modern film it's um Hu Xiaoxian's The Assassin from 2015 which is uh, it, it's a wuxia film and it's got Xu Kui in it and um and it split critics and viewers right down the middle because it's an incredibly obtuse (laughs) and difficult to understand and and obliquely filmed film um i always describe it as it's like watching a proper wuxia film through a through a thin gossamer curtain in that you can't really see what's going on you always seem to be viewing the story from the side if you describe the story itself about a female assassin coming to kill somebody um it sounds quite quite standard but it's filmed in a very oblique very obtuse kind of way and i really really adore it and i know i know i I, i'm pretty certain you won't like it or would if you if you've seen it (laughs) um but (laughs) we were split on eastern kicks right down the middle to to the degree that we we actually did a, we did a sort of a, a special article where some of us fought for it and some of us fought against it and we never really came down to a conclusion but it's, it's 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 one of the most beautiful films that you'll see um but it is it is a difficult watch if you're going to watch it because you're expecting a a classic wuxia it's got all the things it's got people jumping through the trees and sword play and things like that but and and it's, it's clearly set in the in the jinghu and it's it's all about the corruption of of people in power and the and the righteous swords person, um, but yeah, it's um, it, it was the most difficult one because a lot of people hate it, but I also think a lot of people love it. It is the ultimate marmite choice. Have you seen it? Enough. Have you seen it? No, have. you haven't. No, I right. don't think I have. Okay. okay, it was yeah, it was it was quite majorly lauded. Um, was up, up for, um, it was Taiwan's um, Oscar, you know, the best foreign film, Oscar nom, but it didn't get anywhere. But yeah, fantastic film, but not for you, sir. However, I know you've seen this film. <laughs> I
0: would, that said, you just, you didn't say that, and you know, I could surprise you.
1: You could do, but no, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure. No, okay. next one is The Machine Girl. Okay. So, from the sublime to the ridiculous, I think I've gone there. Um, it's one of Noboru Iguchi's um, sort of shock gore films. I don't know, sort of rubber gore, I call them. Um, basically, exploitation cinema with rubbery prosthetics. Um, lots of violence, lots of sort of fanservicey y kind of things going on. Um, basically, about... A, girl who gets involved when her brother's killed by a Yakuza or as Wikipedia calls it a ninja Yakuza clan, <laughs> which I don't I don't think's a thing. Her hand gets cut off and she replaces it with a machine gun. And it's bonkers and it's fantastic and there are plenty of films, quite often from the same director and his and his ilk, um, that that are incredibly popular and incredibly stupid fun like this film, but for me, this was the—I don't know if this was the first, but it's certainly the first that got any kind of international acclaim. And I think it's—I think I think it's a superior—it's um, a superior implementation of this kind of film. <coughs> and I just love it. I think it's—I um, think it's just a huge amount of fun, and it's that kind of you know—a lot of Japanese films we'll watch are quite po-faced and even when they're dealing with dark subjects are are not what you would call fun Um, whereas this one is it's all about the fun and the laughs really
0: yeah, I mean, he's definitely uh, a director who's got uh, some cool appeal to him. I mean, uh, Gucci also went on to do Robo Geisha. And it was really around the same sort of time you had this little wave of movies that came out. Because you had this, you had the Meatball Machine, and you had Tokyo Go Police, which uh, directed by um, Yoshiro Nishimura, who worked on the special effects on this film. And I think Tokyo Gore Police was the one that really sort of stood out uh, for a lot of people. And, um, and in its wake, it sort of people sort of like cutting on, to, you know, like Meatball Machine and, uh, and Machine Girl. But I think Machine Girl, like Tokyo Gore Police, of these sort of punk movies, this was sort of like the higher echelon, really. And I think it also helped the fact that Miike was so in vogue at the time that... People who were like uh, really into like the Miki movies, especially like things like Isha the Killer, um, and Gozu, they were just like really sort of vibing off what this film was offering because it was essentially offering more of the same. It's just this absolutely bonkers splatterpunk and. Um, I think in terms of like where American horror was, especially at the time, I think American horror become more sort of sanitized, become more withdrawn with obviously like films like Scream set a new sort of standard and moved away from that 80s sort of splatter. And here we had these Japanese films, which were just like, oh yeah, we're just going to throw gore and gratuity right at the wall and just uh just go, go for it. And I think that's what really sort of helped this uh, film get through. But it's a real bonkers piece and i'm very surprised to see it on on your list but at the same time i think it's uh definitely a film of note
1: yeah i i, I do have my moments of <laughs> of, of, of such films um th- I there's a few it's
0: like your world of kanako pick <laughs> uh
1: yeah although although i i love this film i mean i'm not i'm not i'm not <laughs> against a silly uh a silly nonsense film uh, this this one just hit a particular um just hit a particular note with me um I, I'm not. I'm not sure why, but I think I think we'll be going on for. There'll be a, there may be another one or so of these films which you'll you'll be surprised at. Um. So next up, Sion Sono film, because we got to have one, haven't we? Okay. <laughs> um, and I know I think you picked Cold Fish.
0: Yes, in the it first
1: 50. first one, and I think I might have picked one as well. I can't remember. I'm I'm a huge fan of Sion Sono. Um. Um, I like Sion Sono best when he is being imaginative and trying different things. Um, I also like some of his sort of darker, more dramatic stuff, but, but his his nutty stuff is good. And the nuttiest film I have seen of his is Tokyo Tribe, which is uh, it's a rap it's a yeah. rap musical comedy <laughs> and. I saw this. I was lucky enough to see this in a in a in one of those um, review cinemas, tiny little cinema with about twenty seats in London in Soho, um, and there were a bunch of other sort of reviewers there, and they were proper reviewers, not for silly little websites, but for proper 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 um, magazines and newspapers and and the like. <laughs>
0: For distinguished press. <laughs> Indeed.
1: But occasionally I, I managed to get myself... There's, there's another story about the time I was in a room with a man from Sight and Sound magazine who asked me what my favourite film of the year was and I couldn't talk because I was such a fraud. Anyway, I'm not a fraud. <laughs> I, well, I am. but Anyway, Tokyo Tribe just blew their minds and I loved it. And what I loved about it most was is that the wrapping the worked <laughs> and that it also worked with the translated into english japanese with its honorifics and the way that the language works is perfect for rap because pretty much every sentence will rhyme with any other sentence so um it 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 just sounded fantastic it's it's nonsense it's it's i think it's based on a manga um with these silly tribes in a post-apocalyptic tokyo and there's 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 some unsavory stuff going on and there's rapes and there's cannibalism and there's it just feels the most comic booky film in the world but quite often when you watch these films people have this fantastic idea and then they tail off you know how many films we watch where the first act is full of this imagination and fun and and a high concept and then they don't really pull it off until the final reel well sono absolutely does it in this film and I absolutely get why people wouldn't like it, but I just, I just find it hugely entertaining, and I even have the soundtrack album on my iPhone that I listen to still
0: regularly, so it had to be on here. Definitely a very, very creative uh, movie. I mean, as I said, it's it's always interesting when you have a musical in uh, in a foreign language, and uh, just the idea that you reading subtitles for a rap. Thing. and i think bar the opening which i think goes a little too far mm. um i think that the rest of the film is just really creative it's kind of like the warriors in many ways mm. but but uh, with that real sort of japanese flavor to it so you have like the head of the the tribes is obviously there he's got like the samurai helm on um and then we have like we look at, like, the big boss there, and we got, uh, he's there with, like, his bodyguard, who's, uh, the wrestler, uh, Yoshiro Takayama. which, if you're a fan of Japanese wrestling, is an important thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can normally tell who's a Japanese wrestling fan when they talk about this film, and they highlight him, uh, but it's also got Ricky, uh, Takeuchi, as well, who's just, like, one of my all time favorite Japanese actors is, especially if you're into Yakuza movies. Um, and we obviously talked about his one of his ones before because he was in Dead or Alive, mm. and he's also uh, the head teacher in Battle Royale too. Mm. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, he's again another connection there to uh, professional wrestling because he was in Hustle in 2009, posing as himself uh, called King Ricky. That's beside the point. Uh, this is your list, Stephen. <laughs> <And>, uh, <yeah. laughs> no, I'm not that... here to talk about Japanese wrestling and oh, That's
1: okay. So that, that was my number 10 pick. Um, number nine. Um, a bit of an obscure one. Um, we talked about the Pang Brothers a little while ago. Um, this is a film by one of the brothers, the fabulously named Oxide Pang, and it's called Diary. I have spoken about this before. Um It's again, um, I'm just just checking when it came out here, 2006. Um, basically it stars, um, Charlene Choi, who you may remember as one of the twins from uh, the twins effect, um, who seems to be living alone in her apartment day after day, um, waiting for her boyfriend seth who's played by um sean yu who was ubiquitous in hong kong films at this time um and as it becomes clear she's not quite right in the head Mm -hmm. and um it appears something's going wrong and she's had a psychotic incident but it the, the, the film is you know it's there's the Pang Brothers did a lot of films like this at this time, um, almost Schalman-esque, where you know they they pick some kind of psychological, some some falsely interpreted psych, uh, psychological or, or psychiatric disease, and um, made a film about it. It's a small film. It's maybe a bit problematic, but. Hey, Hong Kong cinema, we allow it. It has a fantastic performance by Charlene Choi. Um, of the twins, she is clearly the uh, superior talent. But you know, she, she she was this this film. I would say led her on to some quite spectacular roles later on. She is now really thought of as an actress rather than one of the twins. Um, it's also like it's got Sean Yu, who's 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 like a ubiquitous. Leading man from this period, and, and to an extent, still now, and and the gorgeous Isabella Leong is in it as well. I really don't want to talk about it too much because it's a complete spoiler about what's going on. <laughs> but um, but basically, not everything's at the scene, and you you just you just live this breakdown with this woman and her Im- imagination and what she sees going on. Um, think of it as a, rep- uh, a, a a Cantonese version of Repulsion, but with um, without without the men hating. I'm not sure if it's ever had a release outside of Hong Kong, but it's just one of those. Again, it's just a film which has really stuck with me since I first saw it, and possibly more than the Eye gave me a love for the Pang Brothers' films. Right, so you won't, so you won't to that. Right, next, you won't seen this either. Um, another Thai movie, but this time from 2017, and this is. Oh my gosh, this is Bad Genius, Um, which is basically a heist movie about um, high school results. Yeah, and and, and a little bit here, I I do know the director, and um, I I had a very nice afternoon in a pub with him once. Well, I gushed all over his film, but he's a lovely fella. Anyway, that's the disclosure side of it. Basically, it's set in it's set in Thailand. Set in, um, I guess it's high school. I, I, I always get confused, but basically, Thailand, like everywhere else in China, the the, the there's a lot of pressure on the school system. This film um, takes the sort the, the international exams that that some of the kids have. Um, and if you pass that, then obviously you can go to a, like a, a Western university or something like that. It's based on a true story, although a bit ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it, it goes a bit further. Um, a really straight-laced student basically comes up with this scheme of cheating at these um, at these exams, and then they it, <laughs> the cheating takes part, and it's filmed like it was a heist movie. You know, where you where you see all the um, all, all the things that they're doing off, well, rather than it just being that they're the cheating and they're passing notes around and things like that. It, it's a little more complicated than that. And to watch it, it'll make sense. But it uses the uses the tropes of the heist movie and indeed the fact that they don't get away with it because no one ever does in a heist movie, do they? <laughs> um, it's just it's just. A really brilliant, high-concept idea put together by, I think this is his sophomore film. Uh, the, the, the first film wasn't very well thought of, although it, it's, it's okay. I, I do remember watching it. But, um, yeah, oh my God, just a fantastic film. Again, I'm not sure. It definitely got a Hong Kong release. Um, did the whole festival thing. It might be available for people to buy, but I could not recommend this more. And the only reason it hasn't come to the show is because I I just don't know if you'd be able to find a copy of it. Or would. But huge amount of fun. Next up is Mainland China and director Chen Cage. So, so I know some people in the uh, in the Facebook group, Facebook group like us to uh, talk about fifth generation Chinese cinema. Um, farewell, my concubine um i've picked this because well it's leslie chung and it's gong lee and um it's just a really fantastic looking film um basically the story of um two um young men who grow up in the Peking opera school um one of them is clearly homosexual one of them isn't they and, and you follow their life at the same time following a period in chinese history um so you get this this, this duality of, of these two two people growing up in a in a really strange world in, within the chinese opera in the peking opera sorry um whilst a whole political shift is going on in the background um so it kind of works as this kind of as this beautiful period drama you know a bit like um oh god like those Urch, merchant ivory films that the british used to put out in in the, the 80s um, okay, yeah. it's got it's that kind of that kind of feel but there's a there's a real because it's a chinese movie because it's chen cage you there, there's some quite biting political and sociological Commentary going on in the background that you, that you can watch or not watch, as as you might want. Um, I think sometimes it's people don't watch it maybe because they think it's uh you know they think it's an LGBT film, um, which, which it is, but it, there's far more to it than that. It's it, it it's got a bigger story to tell than that. And Leslie Chung is just astonishing in it. Um, in fact, all, all the main players are astonishing in it. Um, I mean Gong Li obviously is is, is one of the great great stars the great female stars of, of chinese cinema so she's fantastic and Zhang fengyi is is also great as well so um it's a film i i only came across fairly recently not that i came across i've known about it for years but I'd, i kind of avoided it and uh but when i actually put the hours in and and decided to watch it i realized what a what a fantastic film that is have you seen
2: that
0: a long time ago um again fellow my concubine it's I want to say this one came out through Artificial Eye, which is how I how mm. I came across this one. I think you're right. Um, and an Artificial Eye back in the day when you were, when I was like first getting into, into cinema properly, and you would like buy the Artificial Eye releases and the trailers that came before the film. Um, you know, show sure my age and I would VHS you had trailers before the film <laughs> and they encouraged you to buy more product not an optional extra on the DVD because they need to fill up space um, and I was for sure I were really good like you would buy like a Kevin Smith movie like I got Clerks and then it would give you trailers for like other films that Smith had highlighted as being inspirations for himself, um, which were obviously on the, under the label. And I think, and sometimes they just like used to throw some random film out there because they couldn't make a link. And I think Farewell My Concubine was. Uh, one of those those films, and that's how I came to first sort of see it, but yeah, it's um, a film that I don't think I fully really appreciated back when it was released I think certainly when it came to like New Queer Cinema um, and anything like an LGBT sl- slant on it, um, sort of like around the early 2000s and stuff, i it wasn't wasn't having the same sort of impact uh, as it was now. It was almost like you're watching something you shouldn't be watching whenever you had a film with LGBT films in. So it'd be interesting to go back now as you're older and perhaps Mm. wiser movie view and seeing how I respond to it now. But um, no, certainly on a filmmaking sense, it's a very fascinating film indeed.
1: Yeah.
0: I thought that was a
1: bit of a self-dismissive Yeah, then, wasn't it, by me? (laughs) Um, Right. Okay. Next. Now, by an accident, the next two films have the same director, which was wasn't done on purpose. Though I just I just chucked down a load of film names when I was doing the original original sort of uh, bingo shuffle of what I was going to pick, and, and these two have just come up against each other. So the first one is 1991 Center Stage. Now, if you a faithful audience, cast your mind back to when I used to do the uh, Dark Tales of Asian Cinema, you remember my story of Rwandling Yu, the uh, sort of the, the the big star of. Um, of silent, um, Chinese cinema, um, the Chinese Garbo, she was known as, um, who, who committed suicide at the age of 24. Um, this is basically, uh, Stanley Kwan's sort of biopic of her starring the wonderful Maggie Chung. Um, and it's just a fantastic movie, um, that, oh gosh, (sighs) It, it's not your traditional biopic, though. Um, it, it it combines um, sort of people talking in the modern day, including Quan himself, um, sort of discussing um, the importance of Quan and her life. Um, sort of period interviews with people that knew her, and then Maggie Chung reenacting certain sequences from Quan's life um and then there's also extracts from ran's real films in there as well so it's, a, it's not really multimedia but it's like a it's like a docu biopic um it, it's, it's hard to explain fantastic cast uh, maggie chung Tony long cafe karina lao um, it's got this wonderful visual sort of it's not sepia tone but like a purple-o sepia tone. Um, it's just a fantastic-looking film. Maggie Chung is fantastic. Um, there's loads of other people that you'll recognise of. You know, Wei C. Lee's in it as well. Um, but a really important film about somebody that people won't... Oh, no, I've done my bit. <laughs> Talking about uh, on 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 the podcast before. But, you know, this is... um, You know, this is this would be like the biopic of Greta Garbo. Some, you know somebody that 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 sort of culturally important and of course with that that dark side to it which was all led by the media interest and guess what people are still killing themselves because of how the media and the, and the vox populi goes on so it's a story that's as relevant today as it was back in the day and back in the 90s when this film was made and as a double header, <laughs> um, okay. a, another Stanley Quan film <laughs> um, was um, Rouge, um, nineteen eighty eight. Um, actually, it's a double header with um, with.
2: Uh, with um,
1: not only with the same director, but it's a double header with um Farewell My Concubine because it's based on a story by Lillian Lee, who I'm pretty certain wrote Farewell My Concubine as well. So obviously there's a these this is a threefa that have just come together. Um Rouge, it's another another film with um the wonderful Leslie Chung in it. But the star of the show here is Anita Mui, again who I've spoken about multiple times in the past. Basically, it's the story of a they call her a courtesan but she's a prostitute um but prostitute looking for her long-lost lover who it turns out uh, she's a ghost um i wouldn't that's not really a spoiler it's kind of clear but it kind of it evokes this 1930s era of, of of hong kong and the tea houses and it's just a glorious thing and Anita Mui's wonderful um one thing I will say is that Leslie Chung's character is um does not come out of this film well both in terms of being a dick and um some of the prosthetic makeup at the end but yeah it's it's just a I don't really want to talk about it too much because it'll um again a bit like diary'll it'll, it'll spoil what's going on but yeah it's it's just a it's just a lovely film but the highlight of it is Mui who obviously is a, is a is an actress I've um, I've spoken about again in the dark tales of Chinese cinema, mm-hmm. um, dark tales of Asian cinema. But uh, really highly recommend because you get you get two stars, Li Tianwei and Leslie Chung from that golden age at the at the height of their form, the height of their fame and the height of their form. So yeah, that's a Rouge. Right, number twenty one. <laughs>
2: What yeah.
1: You, yeah? So. I've lost count. Dragon In the the original, nineteen sixty seven, okay. King Who. Obviously I had to pick a King Who film because um obviously the guys over at um, Eastern Kick thought so I was an expert on him because um they made, they asked me to come on the show and talk <laughs> about him, so uh I hadn't really realised I'd watched a lot of this one, but of course I had. I mean, I could have picked Dragon Inn, I could have picked New Dragon Gate Inn, I could have picked Flying Swords of Dragon's Gate. They're they're all fantastic movies telling the same story. This is King Hu, um, Post Come Drink With Me, um, which I know, is a film we've spoken about before. Um, Made in Taiwan. It's, uh, it's a classic. It's, It's the story of a whole bunch of people turning up at, um, at at the uh, eponymous inn, and shenanigans going on, and there's and it's a whoosher film. It's a it's a martial arts film. It's um. It, it it's one of the most important films because it it, it kind of spawned the entire, not the entire genre, but it, it 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 spawned a sort of popularity in it. Um, and actually also there's a there's Goodbye Dragon Inn of course, which is a film which uh, in in which this film is is played at the cinema um i know <laughs> i know you've seen uh, i've know you've seen this film um uh and and it's it it's 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 just i don't know it's just an important film to me because it's it's one of the classics
0: yeah i mean obviously i saw sort of new dragon gate in first uh, that was 92 one and that was through uh, the hong kong legends label um and i uh, it's obviously dragon dragon in afterwards cuz I want to say that was also released for Eureka, so it came for a little later. And the Flying Swords of Dragon Gate, I saw without even realizing that it was, and it was like um, another remake again. Mm. So it's only once that started. It's like, oh wait, I mean, I've seen this before. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dragon Dragon Inn is very important. I mean, in terms of like the King King Kumu's, I think it's so like this. Come drink with me and uh, touch of Zen, which are like the three big ones for him. Um, so. I think you any three of those uh, would be would be great on but I think certainly Dragon Inn is um it's definitely a, a film worth checking out. Even if you've seen the remakes, it still has has things to offer uh, for you, and I think it's definitely one that's uh, worth checking out. So
1: good, excellent, right? We're nearly there, free to go, and the next two are films that we have talked about on the podcast. So I know okay. I know you've seen them. The first one, <laughs> I know, you weren't particularly bowled over by. But 2016's The Wailing. Um, yep. South Korean horror film that, for me, revitalised South Korean horror movies um, by Na Hong Jin. For me, and again, maybe I should just send people back to listen to the episode, but hmm. it's, it's just this fantastic cacophony of different ideas... And implementation you think it's going to be a serial killer film and then you think it's a film maybe about something going on with with sort of racial politics of south korea and then it then has a look at animism as, as as sort of the underlying second religion of everybody in south korea and then it's a supernatural film and oh i i absolutely adored this film however i know you were a bit Meh about
0: it, I think it's mainly because it was so built up so much. Um, I know team member Steph really liked it. I mm. think David Brooke liked it as well. And I want to say that um, Zoe uh, from Zobo the Shotgun, who was on that particular episode, I think she liked it mm. as well. It's just myself who was in that that small club of people who was like, "Ah, it was okay." I don't know. I, I think because he was like he was coming up with a lot of hype, and especially the guys over, like, Gem Sky to Midnight Cinema was like, oh wow, this is like the scariest movie ever, and all the rest of this nonsense. Which um, doesn't help you, help you when it comes to watching horror films to know something's the scariest um, ever. But, um, I mean, there's certainly some effective moments in it, but... This is a film. It just did not uh, connect it with me in the same way that you. it did. Everyone else apparently did. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't place why. I really can't. So it,
1: it is interesting. I mean, it came out at the same time as uh, Train to Busan, um, which is possibly a more straightforward horror movie. Although you know, it, yeah. it, it, I, I don't know. Is it still on your cinema shame list? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's only
0: I've got it on the Sky Plus box, so it will be watched at any, some point. There's
1: only one way to fix that, isn't there? I'll have to sort that out. But both of them came out. basically, if not the same year, in concurrent. In, in, in they were around at the same time, and both of them revitalise it. Uh, train to Busan is 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 is, is a, it's just a really brilliantly realised zombie film that does everything a zombie film does, and just puts it in a slightly interesting place. A train. Spoilers. Whereas Wailing, I think maybe Wailing is a bit more art housey. I don't think it's the scariest film I've ever seen. <laughs> I don't think I don't I don't think it was about the 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 it didn't invoke fear in me, but it certainly invoked interest. And and there are elements that still stick with me now. I, I don't know if you remember whether the shaman, although maybe he's a fake shaman, is is doing all the dancing and there's noises and chickens getting thrown everywhere and the drums are beating and 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 there's just amazing bits of. Cinema inside it, but just I just love the way it was mixing, matching with different genres, um, as as Korean films would want to do, and and it really, really affected me. And, and and you're right, I think everybody except you really liked it. You need to have a long, hard look at yourself, sir.
0: I don't. <laughs> <to> <laughs> um, I, no, I remember the scene as I wanted to Sherman, the possessed guy in the woods with mm. the red eyes. That mm. was very unnerving. um uh, but yeah, as I said, I don't know what it was. I just, maybe I wasn't in, in the space for it or what, but um, that that one, I don't know what it is. It just didn't sit with myself, but as I said, I seem to be very much in the minority because everyone else, I think everyone else on our team loves it, and uh, I think the general consensus is that it was a, a good film. And I mean, it's on Netflix still, so you can go check it out pretty easy there as well. So
1: Go listen to our episode. Yes. Hear, us, hear, us, hear your full menace. No, it, it's fine. That's the point of the show. If we both loved everything, it would be um it would be boring. Right. Number two, there's another another one actually quite a recent episode. Um Mother. Um Yes, 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 Parasite won the Oscar. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody likes the host or memories of murder, but for me, mother is Bong John Ho's greatest achievement um a a basically a a noir detective film starring a middle-aged woman trying to um uh trying to protect the honor of her mentally handicapped son who may or may not have committed a pretty awful crime um oh just uh, but Director bong obviously is, is, is somebody I, I've been a big fan of forever. I'm really delighted to see he's getting their credit. too we've um obviously we've spoken not just about Mother, but I don't know where this fits. Have we had episode fifty-one yet? No, we've not had episode fifty-one. <laughs> In episode 51. <laughs> <laughs> episode
0: fifty-one is going to be coming up next. We have uh, just to let you you know pull the wizard was and pull back the curtain. We have actually recorded our episode fifty-one. Um, which we'll reveal what that's going to be at the end of this episode, but uh, yes. Yeah.
1: Spoilers, might be a Bong film, but you'll find out if you hold on another 10, ten minutes. Yeah, to, to me, this is just his, his best film. It has all the things that, you know, all that sort of social commentary that, that Bong likes to do with a phenomenal central performance um, and just a, an, an interesting mystery where we are, are led this way and that, um, about whether whether the who, who did the crime, who is part of it, is, is our protagonist's son guilty or not, um, and also the lengths a mother will go to to protect her son, whereas a uh, you know our, our protagonist does some pretty pretty dark things, and they don't always go right for her. Um, I, I think if I'm rightly mate, you 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 enjoyed Mother. I'm not sure yep. it's your favourite Bong film,
0: but. Um, um... Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, when it comes to Bong, you know, I you know I saw the uh, the host when it came out, and I was I didn't actually watch anything else that um, attached to Bong as a director, just because I didn't really vibe with the host, and it's probably to my own detriment now, especially when it comes to like memories of uh, Memories of Murder, which is now an absolute pain to get hold of, and. Even more so now with uh, him having won the Oscar for Parasite, it seems that traders would now like basically jack to pull their prices for it um, ahead of the Criterion release that we've got coming out. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Tito uh, Kiki, the uh, director for Ragnarok and uh, What We Do in the Shadows, uh, basically whenever he talks about uh, Bonk, he's, uh, he's always like, oh, master Bonk. mm He's a very big fan of, uh, of his work. And I think, certainly, when you look at Mother, it's, it is a really fantastic film. I think it's that amateur detective style story. And as you said, it's the lengths uh, this mother will go to because she's just the sort of uh, local acupuncturist. She's just living her, her quiet little life. And uh, d- for her to descend into the underworld. Of uh of this this town, I think is just a really sort of fascinating story, and more so when it when you see this how dark this film sort of gets in its final sort of reels. Um, I think it it really sort of pulls out a number of surprises that I wasn't expecting with it. But um, yeah, it's definitely one that's worth checking out, even if you perhaps wasn't won over on his like other films um at all. I think it's one that definitely um definitely resonated with me
1: yeah and and, and another one I wonder oh why didn't I stick that in my top 25 anyway right my number one pick now if you've been listening you'll know what this is (laughs) it's it's Stephen Chow's The Mermaid now obviously this will make it three Stephen Chow films in our top 100 but I make no apologies for this I watched The Mermaid in um, Leicester Square right next to Chinatown With an audience of apart from me, Andrew, the head of Eastern Kicks and his wife, everyone else was Chinese. And they didn't stop laughing from beginning to end. Now, The Mermaid is interesting because it's Stephen Chow's first real film that he made for a mainland Chinese audience. So this isn't a film full of clever, witty Cantonese puns. Um, this isn't a film that's that interested in the 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 the, the, the Tao often um, sort of rips stories from the headlines and very contemporary stories that have no resonance later on. This is purely this is a slapstick silly story, but it's it, it's it's proper silly rather than being silly in a way that can sometimes make you go what 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 was that about <laughs> and, hmm. and sometimes yeah sometimes with Stephen Chow films and Moloté films so you can you can get a little um I don't I don't get that joke and that can take you out of it so I think I was I was helped by watching it with an audience that just understood every word and wasn't reading the the, the subtitles but I adored this movie from beginning to end I own it on blu-ray i own it on 3d blu-ray as well even though you know it's the cgi has probably not moved on that much since i um, shouting soccer frankly um it's got a fantastic central performance by yet another single um jelly lynn who hopefully will go on to bigger things um it's got cameos from people like joy hark um it's got an environmental message um which i think is is very important that someone with the voice of Stephen Chow can make a film that has such a strong environmental message within the mainland chinese um infrastructure, so it's an important film as well um it's just it's just it's just a fantastic film, and it was easily the best film I saw that year um it shows that Chow, even when he's only behind the camera, can can pull it off. I really enjoyed his New King of Comedy, the, the film he made after this, but most other people don't agree with me. Um, but the the mermaid is just it's just a it's his it's his Mandarin masterpiece, and um, I hopefully history will look kindly upon it because I adore it, and that's why it's my number one stroke twenty six
0: fantastic um, I believe it's still the highest grossing film in China mm. um, certainly it was at the time and uh, Kim over at Moves in Tea um, is also a fan of this film as well so uh, as for seeing it I've not seen it because the distribution for this was horrible for the, the UK and I again it's, I'm not sure what's going on here because we obviously had Kung Fu Hustle we had Shadow and Sokka which have, had great uh, distribution for the UK and then we thought we'd see the same with The Mermaid and just Never happened, and it, it, got,
1: it got it didn't get a big cinema release. Not even that it got it got it in very localised areas. I think you know places with big Chinatowns. Yeah, um, but it got it got a DVD and Blu-ray release in the UK. Interestingly, um, although I suspect you'd have to go crawling for it. I haven't seen it on any of the streaming services, and and it's a real shame because it's um, you know you know obviously I do like the old art house film least half the films I've picked, maybe two thirds of the films I've picked, have and, and 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 this is this is a bit more film for
0: the common man. Um,
1: Let's and, see,
0: and, and it, yeah, I mean you can <laughs> you can rent it on on uh, Amazon, but it's not um, it's not purchasable. It's not purchasable, which it seems to be a worrying thing at the moment. The amount of physical media that's that's just uh, dis- just disappearing. I know this morning I was um, trying to find a. Physical copy of uh, Alexander Ajay's uh, Piranha, <laughs> and uh, just had to end up going for like a used used buy just because Amazon did not have the physical disc; they only had the digital version. of I it, mean, And it's just a weird how DVD and Blu-ray and stuff all this physical media is just slowly being uh, and, moved and,
1: out. And you know, obviously, this is something we've spoken about before, but that as as I found out to my own cost, when you buy something digitally you don't own it and it can disappear Hmm. overnight um it's happened to me on itunes with um with with music rather than 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 film but the the same is true you know if if amazon lose the rights to something that you've bought digitally you won't have it anymore either and it's all there in the fine print and i know i i like to own a dvd or a blu-ray i like to um or a vhs or a CD, or a VCD, or whatever. I I like to have it. If a film,
0: a gramophone record, a seventy-eight, yeah, <laughs> an eight-track, yeah, yeah. Don't or a Betamax, yeah.
1: Okay, all right. Let's do it. Let's let's stop there. Uh, a wax cylinder. No, um...
2: <laughs>
1: no. I I I think there's something tangible. It's about like people who still like vinyl records yeah it's because it, there's something tangible to touch you can look at the sleeve art you might get a booklet with it um do i watch an awful lot of my blu-rays and my seat and my dvds probably not i probably do have them ripped in different ways or watch them electronically I, yesterday i was watching a film i own on dvd but i just watched it on amazon because it was easier but I'm glad I own it because one day it may not be there anymore. obviously DVDs rot and things like that. I know that but but there's something something tangible at ownership and I think it's I think it's a shame that lots of these films are not um, are not available for us physically um especially in a world where we know people can just i mean there was a time people would just pump out a CDR for a DVDR for you and uh <laughs> there's a market in that but that seems to have disappeared as well.
0: Yes. Um, but, uh, anyway, rant over. Yes, very interesting list there. Um, certainly in contrast to to my own, but um, I think there's a real sort of mixture of stuff in there. You've got uh, some mainstream, you've got uh, some art house, you've got some classy fare. It's a uh, it's a very interesting list to to work through there. So
1: yeah, I mean, uh, that, that 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 was that was the idea. Just try and try and delve into all the different areas that that I've enjoyed and also just to just to give some some shout outs to maybe bits of of Asian cinema that maybe you and I aren't so familiar with or that we haven't really explored so I'm glad to get a film from Malaysia on there I'm glad to get a film from a couple of films from Thailand on there um a couple of Indonesian films just failed to get a Singaporean film in but maybe maybe next time when we do 51 to 75 <laughs> hmm
0: so there you have it there's our top 50 asian cinema the next uh, the next batch so to speak and uh, that will obviously be added on to our existing list of 50 bringing the total now to a nice round 100 um as always you can uh, check out that episode over on our blog which is uh asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com and you can also check it out in the archive as well um Thank you as always for listening and uh, if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us, be it on iTunes or Google or Spotify or Anchor. Wherever you happen to listen, please do uh, hit the subscribe button so you don't ever miss an episode and maybe leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show as it all helps raise the profile of the show. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and as I said the full archive of episodes is available on Movies and at which also has all our other fun bits of writing like we've got the movie vault we've got the anime uh, vault we've got the Dark Tales of Asian Cinema we've got our mixtape, there's all sorts of really fun stuff on there as well um, but Stephen I mean obviously for our next episode we do have something special planned as we obviously hinted at Earlier uh, in this uh, episode, you mean as um, I
1: let the cat out of the bag too early, yeah. <laughs> yes,
0: and as you said, it is an episode that is going to feature Master Bong. So why don't you let people know what it is?
1: Well, we're um, we're going to look at Snowpiercer, which is a bit of a we, we, we struggled a bit, whether it's an American film or a South Korean film, but I think we decided it's very much South Korean, it just happens to have American actors in it and British actors in it, and um, we brought along a special guest as well.
0: Yes, we're going to be joined by M from Verbal Diorama, um, who's going to be joining us, as so we celebrate the fun, finally us getting a physical uh, copy here for the UK, so uh, we're going to be looking over the film, we're going to be delving into many of the themes and uh, also the Asking the question as to why the British was so snubbed when it came to the distribution of this film, and what part did it ha- did Harvey Weinstein play in all of this? Uh, all these questions and more, we will be uh, answering on our next episode, uh, which we will, of course be looking at Snowpiercer. But until then, thank you as always for listening, and uh, until next time, good night. <coughs> 昨日のことは
2: 忘れて